You're listening to episode 48 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring stories of Ambush Bug, Stanley and his monster, Rex the Wonder Dog, and the Trigger Twins. All of your favorites in one issue. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this episode has four, four origin stories to cover. DC was really raising the stakes as the series neared cancellation, or they were just trying to dump all of their trash. And speaking (laughs) of that... My first guest this episode is one of the founders of the Fire and Water Podcast Network and the host of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, and Once in a Blue Moon, Hero Points, the DC role-playing podcast. Please welcome the guest who won't get out of your hair no matter how hard you scrub, the irredeemable shag. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here, and I can't believe you actually gave me an introduction this time. I usually don't get one, so well, I, I've been listening to your show pretty much like with uh, toothpicks forcing open my ears, being forced to listen to it against my will, but I heard all these guys talking about, hey, I'm part of the Five Timers Club, and they're all so excited about being on the show five times, and I got really jealous. And I was like, man, that's all, that, that, that's really cool. I wish I could join that club, you know? And then I added it up, and oh, this is number seven, girls. That's right. You can take that and uh, go out for Chinese food with that, I suppose. But there it is, folks. Uh, bring it on. We'll see what you got. My next question was, are you still irredeemable? <laughs> <laughs> question answered. There you go. Uh, if anyone is still listening to this show for the first time, you know, I only get to say this three more times. I know. This is it, man. This is it. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990 and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series, and the origin of Ambush Bug is a good example of why I don't have a hard count of the number of stories in this series. (laughs) Uh, Shaggy, you asked for the origin of Ambush Bug. I think this was actually one of the very first stories you requested. Why is that? I fell in love with the character a billion years ago. I picked up the one of the Ambush Bug miniseries. I honestly, at this point, can't remember. And I just I, I picked it up because I thought the art was crazy. I'd heard he was a funny character, and I found the character probably when I was about thirteen years old, which is the absolute right perfect age to find Ambush Bug. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was hysterical. And now, as I read it, as I'm older, I realize I didn't even get half the jokes at the time. <laughs> 
I, I picked up all the stuff. You know, Ambush Bug, Son of Ambush Bug, Stocking Stuffer, the Ambush Bug, nothing special, all that stuff through the 80s. Absolutely thought the character was a hoot. And now it's funny in hindsight, a lot of people don't know who the character is. And, and if you're tuning in and you don't know who Ambush Bug is other than you've seen him, he's that green guy who's supposed to be funny that Keith Giffen loves too much. The best way to think about him is he's Deadpool before there was a Deadpool. Mm-hmm. It really is. He's, he's even more Deadpool than Deadpool as far as the breaking the fourth wall and, and the bizarre non sequiturs. Just, you know, it's almost like the Joker. The Joker randomly says things that you're like, what? But it's funny. That's how Ambush Bug is. Just if you take out the swearing and the killing, he's basically Deadpool. And it's funny, and it worked great for DC for a long time. He strikes me as like a weird sort of combination of Deadpool, Harley Quinn, which I guess is sort of redundant because Harley and Deadpool are almost interchangeable, I think, at this point. But Ooh, you just pissed off some people. I don't care. Um, <laughs> Deadpool and The Tick, maybe. Like it, I'm glad you mentioned that because the tick's going to get mentioned when I talk about this. <laughs> okay. All right. And you also mentioned that a lot of people today might not know who this character was. I, it, to me, it kind of feels like he's a character who burned very brightly, very quickly. Because even in the 90s, when I was you know trying to dip my foot into DC Comics and everything, I didn't really know who that character was. And then when I came back a decade later... I heard him just sort of, he was always kind of spoken about with a, a sense of reverie that everyone was like, oh, Ambush Bug, why don't they publish more books like Ambush Bug anymore and everything? I had never read any of it. I really had no familiarity with this character up until about 72 hours ago when I started binge reading <laughs> some of his first appearances in the first miniseries and the stocking stuffer and everything. So I, I, I got a total crash course in Ambush Bug. And what that has done to me, I can't tell you. I think you're probably right. I mean, starting he, – he first appeared in 1982, uh-huh. uh, and, and I'm sure you'll cover the publication yep. history with a bunch of errors uh, <laughs> as usual. He burned – as you said, burned very brightly. Like from 1985 probably when he got his first miniseries to about 1990, he was all over the place. And a lot of times starring in his own thing or making funky guest appearances or whatever. And Giffen really was the driving factor behind that. And he was a hoot. And then it just very quickly died off. It just went away. And maybe it's the popularity of the Justice League International and Giffen was tied up with that. I'm not sure. But he, he just kind of vanished. And then when Dan DiDio came around at DC and he's bringing everything back, and I guess Giffen felt comfortable enough at that point to do stuff, he did bring Ambush Bug back. And we'll talk about that uh, during the publication history. But um, it's, it is a character that sort of disappeared for a long, long time. Well, and you talk about how Giffen was really the driving force behind the character, and I hate to invoke something Diablo Frank mentioned previously, but it kind of seems like around the time that Ambush Bug was going away, Keith Giffen was kind of being marginalized or kind of being shuttered off to one side of DC, and, and he didn't have the same prominence that he had right in the early 80s, you know, that sweet spot when he was doing Dr. Fate, Justice League International, and all those things. It seems like... Well, that's the, the late 80s. That's the late 80s, not early 80s. Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, the late 80s. So it seems like once we got to the 90s, kind of both of them went away. So maybe as he wasn't uh, as as popular maybe in the halls of DC, then maybe that's when Ambush Bug kind of didn't have the same presence. I it know, could I, be. I, well, I could he be. also moved. He also moved into other things. His his art style got crazier and crazier. Yeah. You know he he was based he was basing a lot of his work on that famous. Um, artist. I'm forgetting his name at the moment. I've done the research on it before. But he did a lot of his art based on a particular artist. Um, not, not swiping, but just sort of inspired by. And then he got just balls crazy yeah. with things like Trencher and uh, Heckler. And I, I love me some Heckler, but all, Heckler really is just kind of another form of ambush bug in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, very crazy, off the wall, so, except the art was even crazier. And you know, Trencher was for Image, I believe. If yes, I it was. Right. I remember getting yeah. that series. And his art... It, it, really... 
probably the best way to, to say – I don't think he was marginalized because he was doing the Lobo stuff, which was selling insanely well. But that's about as far as his influence stretched to DC. I mean, Heckler was uh, what is like a seven-issue failure, um, but Lobo just kept going and just kept going and just kept going. And Giffen had a hand in many of those. So it's probably about the only place his input was valued at that point. Once Justice League Inter- once the shine had worn off Justice League International, yeah. and um, that's kind of what he was doing. All right, then let's get back into the publication history for Ambush Bug. As you mentioned, in 1982, Ambush Bug debuted as a villain, actually, in DC Comics Presents number 52, a story that teamed Superman with the Doom Patrol. The new Doom Patrol. The new Doom Patrol. Hi, Mike. Hi, Paul. Seven months later, Ambush Bug returned when Superman partnered with the Legion of Substitute Heroes, my favorites, in DC Comics Presents number 59. Hi, Russell. Hi, Kyle. (laughs) Hi, Siskoid. Hi, Ange. And the rest of the Legion of Super (laughs) After another seven months, he popped up in Supergirl 16. Then in 1984, he appeared... Just collectively, shout out to everybody right now. Fair enough, okay. In 1984, he appeared in three issues of Action Comics and then appeared in DC Comics Presents number 81 as the actual cover build co-star Superman teamed up with for the first time. Yep. In 1985, Ambushbug starred in his own self-titled four-issue miniseries. Then in 1986, he returned in the Ambushbug Stocking Stuffer Holiday Special, issue 46 of Swamp Thing, and the six-issue Son of Ambushbug miniseries. And then we kind of talked about, like, after the crisis, Son of Earth's, I'm sure he appeared in stuff. You mentioned the, the Nothing Special. Uh, I have no idea what happened to him up until I know that in the New 52 era, he appeared regularly as one of the Channel 52 news backup correspondents. Oh, that's right! Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, him and Calendar Man and somebody else. Now, you didn't get a lot wrong in your stuff, but you got some stuff here. So, let's get a little... Maybe not wrong, just, you know, you forgot some stuff or didn't mention stuff. The action comic stories, really... I I haven't read them in years. I don't even remember what they're about, but I do know they became pretty important because if you read through Who's Who, they're constantly referenced because I guess Ambush Bug helped destroy part of Metropolis or something. I don't remember. Someone's going to write in and correct me, so thanks for that, guys, in advance. But the reason the action comic stuff is important because at this point, Giffen teamed up with his partner, Robert Lauren Fleming. Uh, Giffen would do the plots and the pencils, and Robert Lauren Fleming joined him during the Action Comics era to start doing the scripts, much like he did with J.M.D. Mateus on Justice League International. And that's when Ambush Bug really started to shine. That's when Ambush Bug became laugh-out-loud hysterical. Before that, he had been sort of funny, sort of quirky, sort of weird, but the Fleming brought the comedy to the scripts that just made him a breakout character. And that's where, as you said, uh, it went into DC Comics Business number 81 with Cobra. Now, you mentioned it and the miniseries, but really that was sort of a sneak preview for the miniseries because it came out – DC Comics Presents 81 came out one month before the miniseries. Mm-hmm. So it was more like a launching point. I love how you're just barely controlling your frustration and anger with me. I love I love going through publication history with you. It's like my favorite thing ever. <laughs> so the, one of the things that's worth mentioning is in 19 – I'm sorry, 19, 2008 – Again, Dan DiDio was back. Uh, him and Giffen were partners in crime throughout this. They did a miniseries. I don't know if you heard about this called Ambush Bug Year None. Do you hear about this thing at all? I don't think I heard okay. about it. It was a six-issue miniseries, all right? And it was supposed to be a return to Ambush Bug classic style. It was going to be um, – they were going to have letters pages in there. This is long after letters page had been done away with mm-hmm. and things like that. And the first five issues came out, and they were all very funny. And then number six didn't come out. That I remember hearing about. Now I have a context for the story because yep. – I remember for like years afterward, that's the only question Didio would be asked at cons, is when is Ambush Bug 6 coming out? So no one knows for sure. Some people said it sat on uh, Didio's desk. Some people said there's a particular staffer that left, which caused some issues with the story. We don't know. So then um, somewhere between six months to a year late, 
issue number six didn't come out, but issue number seven did, <laughs> which is hysterical. They skipped number six, and on the cover, it's got Ambush Bug, and he's tied up to a, a, a wooden stake, and he's being about to be burned to death, uh, and the kindling that's going to burn him is a stack of issues number six. Um, it's, it's very, very funny. And the whole issue number seven is basically them talking about why never, number six never got published, and it's a bunch of BS reasons why it never got published. It's, it's, very, it's a cute issue. I mean, it's a bit of a mess, but it's still, it's just fun, and a neat way to sort of fix a problem they had and it's a very ambush bug way to resolve something sure. and then after that shortly before the new 52 ambush bug actually joined the giffen doom patrol hi mike hi paul and became a regular in that doom patrol book which you know it i remember back then just scratching my head going what the hell is he doing in here other than giffen's writing it and now as i look at this from a ten thousand foot level i realized oh his very first appearance was in a dc comics presents with doom patrol that makes perfect sense mm-hmm so lots of fun and uh, a nice long history. And, and one of the things to know about the character really is that he's, as Ryan mentioned, he did start off as a villain. But then he became uh, like a um, hero. He hero worshipped Superman. And he just thought Superman was the greatest thing ever and wanted to be like Superman. But he consistently failed and mm-hmm. consistently got in his own way. He's a bit of a Jar Jar Binks in some respects. He is. He's, he's like that or he's sort of like the like a Silver Age imp type character like a Batmite or a Mr. Mixispitalik who's, who's basically the problem in the story just because he keeps making the hero's life harder. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And his powers, is, his basic powers, all you can really do is teleport. Right. He, he can teleport from one place to another. It originally started off with these little mechanical bugs helped him teleport. And later on, that just stopped being important, and it just he can teleport. <laughs> yeah. And his other probably biggest power is breaking the fourth wall right. and talking to the audience and being completely aware he's in a comic book. Right. All right, listeners, we're that. We are going to take a short promo break, but we will be back in a minute with the closest thing we're going to get to the origin of Ambush Bug. Don't go away. Automa, Argus, Automa, Ballistic, Cardinal Sin, Channel Man, Chimera, Edge, Freight Train, Geist, Gunfire, Akrat, Harry Force, Hitman, Hook, Jam, Joe Public, Loria, Crack, Layla, Lionheart, Loose Cannon, Megabiter, Mongolite, Miriam, Nightblade, Output, Pass, Prism, Razor Shark, Rodney Jane, Samaritan, Shadow Strike, Slick Shot, Smart Shot, Terrorist Wow, that's a lot of radical trademark names. And you may not have heard of any of them, but they were all introduced in DC Comics' 1993 Summer Annuals. Most went on to figure into more stories within their four-color universe. Many earned their own spotlight series, and one became a cult hit from acclaimed creators. While the comics of the 1990s are often derided, for me, as a longtime comic book reader, I found a deepened fandom and a safe harbor from the Chromium Age in the DCU. I fell in love with the history and legacy found in generations of heroic mantles, and my journey into this continuity largely began with Bloodlines. Join me, Diablo Frank, as I explore the more overlooked areas of DC Comics' superheroes, beginning with an early 90s intellectual property generating stunt and fanning outward towards other obscurities and icons from throughout decades of sequential art stories, all flowing through the DC bloodlines. Podcasts available on iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. Through my window today Could have tripped out easy But I've changed my way It'll take time, I know it But in a while You're gonna be mine, I know it We're doing it in style 
Secret Origins 48 has an April 1990 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Chicken and Waffles, the on-sale date was February 20th, 1990. Kevin Maguire drew one of the best covers of the entire series with Al Gordon helping out on inks. The cover shows classic Batman and Robin scaling the side of a building like in the 60s TV show, but directly above them, Ambush Bug has opened a window and is about to drop a water balloon on Robin. We also get some billboards and wall art letting us know that Rex the Wonder Dog, Stanley and his monster, and the Trigger Twins will also have stories appearing in this issue, even though Batman and Robin most certainly do not. <laughs> what do you think of this cover, Shag? I absolutely love this. It is adorable. Now, I'm, I'm a sucker for McGuire anyway, I mean, mm-hmm. given his – and Gordon, their run on Justice League International. But this one in particular is just an absolute hoot. Now, I love that you mentioned the recreation of the Batman 66, sort of them climbing the walls. Because did you notice the details in the background in this drawing? Um, in terms of like, well, just let me ask that question a different way. Do you remember the old '66 show the balloon, where they would climb the up the walls, ru- going sideways? Yes, yes. So it, the way those series worked is they would film those scenes where Batman and Robin scaling a wall, and Sammy Davis Jr. something would come out a window, and they filmed the camera just on its side. Right. Exactly. So really, all all Adam West and Burt Ward were doing were walking along a floor, sort of squatting. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And here, it's clearly the same thing, because if you turn the cover sideways, there's a balloon floating to the right, which is clearly the actual up direction. Yes. And there's some birds that have landed, some little seagulls or something that have landed also on that same direction. So it's clearly that this is a sideways cover, which is hysterical once you notice this background detail. Yeah, no, it's great. I, and the yeah. billboards are hilarious. I mean, yeah, now someone could complain about there being too much text on the cover, but it just works. So that that is my one complaint, is the number of, of text and just like with all of the other stories that they're promoting and everything. And, and maybe it's, I, I kind of wish like the billboards were a little bit fancier. Like if there was a little bit more shape, if they were a little bit more finger esque or not finger, uh, Dick Sprang, like if there was something like that about the, the billboards or something, it would mm. give it a little bit more texture I, as it is. And especially the one that's kind of on the wall under their feet. It just, it doesn't look like a, like a wall sign or anything like a poster. Or something. It just like, but it's, it's really a very, very minor critique like this is absolutely like when i if i when i should say when i do my list of top five covers of secret origins anticipate that this will be on the top five and part of the reason to do this cover too is besides being funny they wanted to highlight some of the creative teams because you think about the people involved with this keith giffen Mm -hmm. hilarious you know robert lauren fleming hilarious phil foglio hilarious trevor von eden you find his art oddly wrong, and maybe that's funny. I don't I, know. I, I will talk about his art more in the next seg- <laughs> or in a later segment. Gerard Jones, Paris Cullens. I mean, there's there's some really funny, creative people involved in this issue, so it, it, I could see why they would want their names on the covers. It's a lot of words, but that's okay. I, I don't mind. You're just an old stick in the mud. True enough. All right, let's open this thing up, and Shag, are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Ambush Bug? No, Ryan, I'm not. And that's because the origin of Ambush Bug is never revealed in this issue. I will, however, instead cover a story called The Secret Origin of Ambush Bug, We Thought Him Up, which is 14 pages and doesn't actually give us the origin. But it's a hoot anyway. With plot and penciling by Keith Giffen, script by Robert Lauren Fleming, inks by Bob Lewis, letters by John Costanza, colors by Tony Tallin, editor Michael Yeary, um, hello, where's Mark Wade? what's up with that, uh, Goodwill Ambassador, which I assume means editor, you know, like supervising editor Julie Schwartz, special thanks to Matt Fiziel. Yeah, uh, this one, the editor, Michael Yuri, he had just come on the book with this issue because Mark Wade was transitioning out. And you will see that Mark Wade's name is still attached to a lot of the stories in these last three issues, but he was sort of on the out. So Michael Yuri came aboard and co-edited a lot of these stories with him. Find him in Back Issue Magazine. There you go. 
So the story opens at a special care facility named the Roscoe P. Sweeney Memorial Home for Forgotten Cartoon Characters. There's an agent there from an organization called the National Bureau of Origins, and he's been assigned to learn the secret origin of Ambushbug. Now, Ambushbug is a resident at this forgotten cartoon character home, and Ambushbug says he's never revealed his true secret origin, and he has no plans to. So the NBO agent, he shows him a photo of this cute doll with an inscription that says, Dear Daddy, I'm lost. Come and find me, your son, Cheeks. Now, this is implying that the NBO is holding this character Cheeks hostage until Ambushbug reveals his true secret origin. And uh, for those of you not in the know, this doll, Cheeks, was adopted by Ambushbug a few years prior and acts as uh, Ambushbug's sidekick, Cheeks the Toy Wonder. Now, make no mistake, Cheeks is really just a doll. Seriously, <laughs> he's not alive. He's just a doll that Ambushbug talks to insanely. He runs around and pretends it's his sidekick, much like the Tick would adopt a block of wood. Except Little wooden boy. <laughs> Don't forget that the tick ripped off Ambushbug's riff. <laughs> so Ambushbug decides to play along with the NBO because he wants to find Cheeks. So he's revisiting all these old locations from previous miniseries. But in truth, during all this, he's really searching for Cheeks. The NBO is not having it. They bring uh, Ambushbug to Warehouse D, where there's all this leftover junk from, as, as uh, Ambushbug says, Giffen's Invasion series, which is hysterical. And he says uh, that he's, he's trying to search for Cheeks in this wreckage. And he's like, he could be in any one of 83 different comic stories. So, Siskoid, I put the question to you. Are there really 83 tie-ins for Invasion? If there is, you're going to be doing that show for a long damn time. <laughs> so Ambushbug decides that if Cheeks isn't... Oh, he doesn't find Cheeks, by the way, in the warehouse. So he decides if Cheeks isn't there, the only place he could be is Heaven. Because, you know, comics. And Ambushbug then uh, meets with the Lords of Order, which is a Giffen trope at this point, and tricks the Lords of Order into killing him and sending him to heaven to look for Cheeks. So Ambushbug's body is reduced to a charred ribcage and cooked human meat. It's disgusting and looks very Giffen-esque. And uh, during this, we get three three more possible origins for Ambushbug. One is sort of this funny hand-drawn page done by a kid. It turns out it's young Irvin Schwab, which is or Irwin Schwab, which is Ambushbug's secret identity. It, he drew this during his algebra class, and it's supposedly the origin of Ambushbug. And really, by the end of it, uh, this hand-drawn dinosaur eats his teacher, and Ambushbug shows up. It's funny. Then we follow uh, Ambushbug's <laughs> charred ribcage and cooked human meat into a Legion acronym Legion meeting with Real Docs. And then later on, we see a Batman origin where the the flying bat that goes through. Bruce Wayne's window just smashes and kills itself against a window. Finally, we follow Ambushbug to Heaven. And basically, Heaven is just a waiting room, like a terminal to, so for you to be sent back to Earth. So, Ambushbug's returned to Earth, and he quickly lo uh, is located by the MBO again. They transform him into one of the big, fat, freaking frogs, which is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle parody. And then... At the end, it's just bizarrely he's assigned to the Suicide Squad. And it wraps up in the end. We never find out Ambushbug's secret origin. And it's revealed that Cheeks is actually the director of the NBO. And he says, why do you think they call this comic book secret origins, you jerk? If we told the readers his origin, it wouldn't be a secret. That is the end of the secret origin of Ambushbug. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, what do you think? There's a lot about it I like. There is. There, it was frustrating, I'll, I'll admit. The first time I read it, I was kind of, uh, I know what they're going for, but it's not working for me. On subsequent reads, I started to lighten up, and I started to get a lot of what they were going for. However, okay. all that said, I'm going to make one declarative statement at first, and this isn't a critique of the quality of the story. I think this should have been one page. I think it should have been the first page. The secret origin of Ambush Bug, we thought him up. And that's the end. Then move on to the next story. 
Really? <laughs> I, I, to me, that would have been the perfect origin for this character. Now, I'm not saying that I hated everything that came after. Like I said, I, there was a lot about what came after I like. I just think I think that would have been equally as good. It, of As good as not giving him an origin of just being metatextual about it and just say, yeah, he's a character that we thought up. We thought this would be funny, and that, and that's it. And okay. I would have been, I would have been just as happy with that. That would have been funny. It certainly would. But given the ambush book's popularity, of the two miniseries, I think they had to squeeze more content out of him. Probably, yeah. There's uh, some great gags in this. There really are. Now, a lot of it features Giffen's uh, sort of traditional nine-panel grid he's known for at this time, which I am not a big fan of. However, I did notice that I liked it better in this issue than in, say, like. Well, certainly the Clayface origin that I reviewed recently from the Batman special, or even the Creeper origin, uh, and like the Doctor Fate series, I think the nine-panel grid works better in this story, and I don't know why, but I liked it better this. It's still not my favorite style. Well, it's the world that Giffen puts forward at this point, mm-hmm. and the Batman universe doesn't look like this, so I can see why the Clayface doesn't work. But when he went through the Legion five-year-later era mm-hmm. and created this dark, dirty era of Legion history, it worked there, and an ambush book sort of inhabits that same dark, dirty story. I mean, when you first meet him in the miniseries, he's in, you know, he's a private investigator living in this scuzzy office. It's gross. It's dirty. And that's how Giffen draws his world, and it makes sense. In fact, there's a great bit where they make fun of Giffen. There's a close-up. Yes! big eye panel. <laughs> this Exactly right. It is, and of course, the camera zooms right in on a giant close-up of, of his eye, which is hilarious. Uh, so, and then, like, in the beginning, where you said uh, about the Secret Origin Ambush Bug, we thought him up, but it's just giant on the wall. And Ambush Bug has painted it with a bucket of paint and a brush. And he has this gag where he says, well, I thought I would do this because painted comics, I hear they sell like hotcakes. And just lots of funny, funny bits in this. Yeah, now, Roscoe P. Alex Sweeney, Ross do you know who that is? I was actually going to, because they mentioned, I was like, the Roscoe P. Sweeney, and I was like, uh, Roscoe Sweeney was the name of the fixer from Daredevil's origin, but I don't know who else it could be referring to. That's what I thought, too. I was like, that's weird. That's a sort of an obscure thing for Giffen to glom onto. I thought maybe you know Giffen had done an, an old fixture story or something from Marvel. Turns out that if you dig even deeper, Roscoe Sweeney is an old uh, Sunday Funnies comic strip character from the 1940s. Okay, then that makes sense. I, I actually thought that it had to be something like that, but... Yeah, I couldn't think of what it was. I mean, because yeah, it's forgotten cartoon character, so it had to be something like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, yeah, when I when I read that, I was like, Roscoe Sweeney, like the, the fixer. That's not even the right publisher. I was like, what is that? <laughs> I was like, who the hell could that be referring to? But there does, and I don't know if this is just the style and the way Keith Giffen chooses to draw certain things rather than what seems like it should be the focal point of the story. Like he just focuses on like weird people kind of walking into frame, and sometimes like, is he drawing somebody I should know, or is that meant to be like an inside joke about somebody but i assume you're talking about jeff in the in the roscoe home there's with the that purple. yeah that's got to be somebody i don't well, know he even meant like this won't impress the syndicate i was like which syndicate is that referring to like they're that's why i'm thinking that's got to be somebody i just didn't have time to google jeff and syndicate in comic characters so yeah. i'm sure it's something yeah. someone the, should do an annotated notes and then the opposing page, page three on the, the middle panel of the top row just this big galoot looking guy walking by with a batman shirt yeah. I'm like, uh, all right. <laughs> I can see what you mean. There are other panels, you're right, where they, he just likes to draw weird people in a scene for no apparent reason. Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder on page f- uh, four, when Ambush Bug falls out of the building and crashes on the ground, and there's a guy in the foreground who's wearing a yellow button with make, a person making a funny face. I wonder if that's supposed to be a Watchman riff. 
I was thinking something like that. And then, like, the middle panel on the bottom row of that same one, there's a kind of nerdy-looking guy wearing... Looks like Peter Parker to me, though, because he's wearing a sweater sweater vest and uh, glasses. That's got to be like a Peter Parker kind of thing. Yeah, so... So I, I do love how he hints at all kinds of different origins in here. You know, English book continually lies about his origin. He he basically at different points gives his origin as being the same as Superman's, <laughs> Spider-Man's, Wonder Woman's, Batman's. He ends up in a parody of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's dealing with the acronym Legion. I, I love how his origin he just keeps coming up with bullshit, and uh, it's hysterical. I find it I find it very funny. I really got into this. I enjoy the heck out of this. I too, and, and uh, like I said, it took me a couple of readings to sort of, and it. I think it helped. Me. The first time I read it, I hadn't read the other Ambush Bug material, so I was kind of like, oh, I don't know about this character. After sampling the original miniseries and his appearances in DC Universe, I was like, okay, now I'm kind of know. I kind of know what I want from an Ambush Bug story. And thinking about the miniseries in particular, it really reminded me a lot of some of the old like Silver Age humor strips, like things like Stanley and his monster that I'll be covering ne- in the next segment, or like the Fox and the Crow. And I, you know, I've had to read a couple of these things as research and. I think Ambush Bug would work in that type of story. Like, I would like to see him in a humor comic that is just him doing his thing that might have parody versions of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, the other DC characters popping up in his stories. I don't think I want to see the reverse. I don't think I want him intruding on the main DC universe. I, I would almost consider him, like a Captain Carrot, like alternate universe type of character. He's in his own little world. And I also think one of my problems with that miniseries was that they, it was, you know, his story, and we see it as much in this one, like every page of this story, it's 14 pages, every page feels like we're going a completely different direction. He's giving yes. us a completely different head fake. The miniseries was very much the same thing. Every page, it was so schizophrenic. It was like, <laughs> it was like talking to somebody with ADHD that they just can't like focus on what story they're trying to tell. And I think Ambush Bug would work in short stories like that if they were more like those, you know, Silver Age humor strips that where you had a story that's four or six pages long. I think the problem that Giffen and Robert Lauren Fleming had in the miniseries was doing that same schizophrenic style but trying to maintain something like a main narrative for 23 pages. I don't think they pulled that off as successfully. And maybe maybe that's just me and uh, like the other uh, other fans kind of just like loved that type of storyline, but I felt like uh, to borrow the phrase that David A. Gutierrez leveled at me recently, a little of that went a long way. So I felt like Ambush Bug would be better in smaller stories. I, I think he's better just seeing him uh, like in a small miniseries once a year, once every couple of years, probably is the best way to use him, small doses, rather than a concentrated burst of sitting down and reading 30 of his comics. It, it's going to kind of play with, with your head after a while, or you're just going to get very bored of it. It's um, d- To borrow an expression and sort of paraphrase it from Honest Trailers, you need to be probably 25 or 30 to really get all the jokes in Ambush Bug, but you need to be 13 to really appreciate it, though. Because <laughs> that's the yeah. that whole very tangential, all-over-the-place kind of style. For old folks like us, it's kind of like, oh, okay. But again, I was 13. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever read. It was so funny. It cracked me up. And it's probably because I had the attention span of a mayfly at age 13. And that's a perfect kind of comic for it. And maybe that's why, like, I don't even think, like, a miniseries, like, once a year, I think maybe, like, a one-shot as a sort of anthology with three or four stories in it, like, once a year. I well, think that's would... what they got to with the stocking stuffer and then the nothing special. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
Well, now that the audience knows you hate Ambush Bug, absolutely, no respect for you whatsoever. Send all hate mail to hot or not at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Perfect. Exactly what I was going to say. Very good. <laughs> well, I, I think the perfect place for him is the New 52 little newsroom. I hope the DC still finds a little corner for him to show up. Again, it, it, even in comic strip form, is kind of like an ideal sort of way to use him. So, I miss you, Ambush Bug. The one page towards the end with the big fat freaking frogs, that one page splash. Yes. That's a really great page. Too funny. I love that page so much. All right, well, outside of comics, Ambush Bug did have one pretty great appearance in Batman the Brave and the Bold, of course. Where else would he be? Do you know who, vo- <laughs> do you know who voiced him in that one? Only because I looked in Wikipedia, but it is my favorite, the Fonz, Henry Fonz, Winkler. Henry Winkler. Or, well, Mr. Uh, MacGyver producer is how I like to think of him. <laughs> that's, I'm sure that's how he wants to be thought of. <laughs> Um, what else besides that? I know he's been. Well, you, you got to mention it here. It, what, what he does in the, in the Brave and the Bold episode, he's trying to stop Batmite, who is trying to make the show jump the shark, <laughs> which is just hysterical. In, even in, con- in concept, is wonderful, and it, it, that's awesome. That's a perfect place to use him. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, uh, he was also in some of the video games like Lego Batman. I think three. He was in the DC Universe. Uh... The online DC Universe online DC game. DC Universe online. Uh, what else? What other media did Scribble, he have? I forgot to mention Scribblenauts Unmasked. Scribblenauts is great. Okay. Anyway, he also appeared in a, in the DC Heroes role playing game from Mayfair, and in a spe- <laughs> sorry, this cracks me up. In, in an adventure called Don't Ask, and it came out in 1986. It is an it is a fan favorite of the DC Heroes role playing adventures. In fact, I want to say this is either Siskoid's first uh, role playing book for DC or his favorite, one or the other. But it is an absolute joy, and we do plan on covering this one on an upcoming Hero Points at some point. So maybe in the next five, ten years, we'll do it. <laughs> I was gonna say that's that's a quite yeah we'll be everybody hold your breath for that one. But the module is truly done in ambush bug style, which is almost impossible to imagine for a role playing game, but it works and it is a hoot. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I I mean I know we talked about this is a fan favorite character. A lot of people love him. I think I can probably take him in small, fairly restrictive doses, and some of it is just. The, the type of humor I, I think I need to be like in the right right mindset for it, but this story is enjoyable. I, I liked reading this secret origin story. Well, it's it's not an origin story, um, but the story that <laughs> happened to be published in the Secret Origins comic. I really like the idea of the Bureau of Origins, or what do they call it? The the National Bureau of Origins with this whole organization. The fact that they make Cheeks the mastermind behind it at the end. That's awesome. Yeah. Your overall thoughts on the story? I thought it was fun. Um, it, I could see why it could be frustrating for someone that's not really a fan of Ambush Bug because it, it is all over the place. It is crazy. I mean, it's 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 an ADD comic is what it is. Mm-hmm. It really is. But it's – I enjoy that kind of thing. Now, if you want more Ambush Bug, uh, you can get on Comixology right now digitally the Ambush Bug – Year None special from 2008, and I know I haven't read it or reread it, I should say, since it was published. But I thought it was an absolute hoot. I enjoyed the heck out of it, guys. So I think you should give it a try. Uh, very cool. All right, well, Shag, I already plugged all of the stuff about yours, all of your podcasts that I care about at the beginning of this. So <laughs> we're going to say thank you very much for appearing one more time on the Secret Origins podcast. I really appreciate it. I just uh, I just notched out my seventh punch on my belt. I'm very proud, and uh, I 
I'm excited to watch to see how the show wraps up. And as I've said before, you really have captured lightning in a bottle with this show, and I really look forward to you being the aged high school football star who's sitting on his porch in his late 30s, balding, beer belly, and reliving those high school glory days of Secret Origins. Can't wait, buddy. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm like laugh crying right now. Because you know I'm right. I know, you're right. All right, listeners, we are going to take a promo break, but I will be back in a minute with the story of Stanley and his monster, which is not a euphemism for anything. It's, it's actually the comic. <laughs> Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. This is Siskoid from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, here to welcome you to the trailer for Gimme That Star Trek, a companion show to Ryan Daly's Give Me Those Star Wars on the same network, launched to coincide with Star Trek's 50th anniversary. Since Star Trek was one of my first loves, something I covered daily for over three years on Siskoid's blog of geekery, and indeed the reason behind my internet handle, I named myself after my favorite Starfleet Captain Benjamin Sisko, I couldn't help but do this, and thankfully, the larger podcasting community has answered the call. About once a month, I get to sit down with a new guest host to talk about an aspect of Star Trek. Could be any version, any show, any medium, any topic. Some of the things that are already lined up include What If the Cage Had Gone Directly to Series with Gene Hendricks, Star Trek's Humanistic Philosophy with Dr. G, Man of Nerdology, Why the Animated Series Deserves a Second Look with Aaron Bias, Alien Wedding Ceremonies with Lonely Heart Bastavac, characters we ought to have seen more of with David Ace Gutierrez, the New Frontier novels with the Irredeemable Shag, Star Trek Captains Hot or Not with The Girls, and looking beyond the Klingon cultural shift, Janeway's decision to kill Tuvix, the Star Trek CCG, How Badass Was Sulu, Making Sense of the Prophets, Enterprise's sense of retro design, and of course, news about your favorite franchise as we come closer and closer to the debut of a new Star Trek show. So I hope you'll join me and my guests, and if you're listening to this, perhaps you will become one, as we boldly go where many, yes, have gone before. The show, again, is Gimme That Star Trek, available from the Fire & Water Podcast Network at fireandwaterpodcasts.com and on iTunes. We are back and better than ever because Doug Zavisha is here to talk about one more secret origin. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you doing, sir? I am very, very good. Thank you for coming back. And I went back through our email correspondence when I first reached out to you about this podcast, which was back in April of 2015. You specifically asked to cover Stanley and his monster which sounds obscene if you don't know anything about the character. Uh, but you said you wanted to do this one so you could claim the Arnold Drake trifecta. 
Yep, that is uh, the the main driver here, and thanks for having me back for this one. No, absolutely no problem. So you've got Dead Man, Doom Patrol, and Stanley and his monster. Was it just for the sake of completion? Is that it? Or did you know anything about this character, Stanley and his monster, before this show? My knowledge of Stanley and his monster is uh, shamefully shallow. (laughs) Uh, My biggest area of familiarity is with his appearance in, of all things, Green Arrow. Yeah, yeah, we were going to talk about that one, too. Um, when I started this podcast, I had no idea who or what Stanley and his monster were. I hadn't read this story yet when I started the podcast, uh, and I hadn't read any Stanley and his well, well, that's not true, because as you brought up, I had read Stanley and his monster in Green Arrow. I just didn't remember, and I didn't make that connection. And that's a good place I need to segue into the publication history. At the time Secret Origins 48 was published, Stanley and his monster had appeared in 18 comics. The Boy and His Pet debuted in a story by Arnold Drake and Wynne Mortimer, originally published in the pages of the Funny Animals comic The Fox and the Crow, issue 95, back in 1965. The Stanley and His Monster feature continued to appear in Fox and Crow until issue 108, released in December of 1967. At that point, the Fox and the Crow title was renamed Stanley and His Monster for an additional four issues, with its final installment, issue 112, released in 1968. So far as I know, that was it until this issue of Secret Origins published more than 20 years later. In 1993, Phil Foglio, the guy who wrote this Secret Origin story, wrote a four-issue Stanley and His Monster miniseries. Then in 1999, Boy and Monster showed up again in the three-issue miniseries The Conjurers, written by Chuck Dixon. Now, earlier we had kind of talked about the fact that Stanley and His Monster, they had appeared in 2001 in Kevin Smith's Green Arrow story The Quiver. However, Kevin Smith's take on the characters were pretty different than how Drake and Bob Oxner used to write them. Uh, So you read the Kevin Smith version. What did you think of that? Um, Well, having recently reread the Kevin Smith version after this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) we're talking night and day there. Yeah, yeah. And as as we'll see when we get to this one, these characters debuted as kids' comics. They were in funny animal books. It's very much Calvin and Hobbes, and... And I think Phil Foglio actually mentions that when he he wrote like a back matter piece in his 1993 miniseries. That it's very Calvin and Hobbes like and very kind of silly. And Kevin Smith does a story that's all about you know satanic worship and demon possession with a weird sort of accident that kind of like throws everything off. And I'll probably get more into the plot of that after we talk about this story. So we should do that. So uh, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Stanley and his monster? Yes, sir. Alrighty. So opening with a splash page of Lucifer Morningstar sitting upon a throne of suffering souls, Stanley and his monster, as this installment is simply titled, is written and drawn by Phil Foglio, inked by Keith Wilson, lettered by Workman, presumably John, mm-hmm. and colored <laughs> by Tom McGraw, who I am hoping is no relation to Tim. <laughs> and it's assigned to Wade and Yuri for blame. From the start, despite the setting being hell, this story is played for laughs, as hell is introduced as, and I quote, a terrible place to raise kids. The triumvirate of hell, familiar to most readers who sampled the Alan Grant and Val Zemeckis demon series, that being Lucifer, Azazel, and Belial, is judging a hairy magenta beast. That beast is being tried for... <clears throat> He is one of the nameless lords of the Sixth Circle. Pitiless, cruel, a real team player. But now, 
Now he brings snow cones to the souls in the inferno, knits mittens for the entombed in the plains of ice, sings hymns <laughs> in the great wasteland of the TV evangelists, and it is he, my lord, who is responsible for those loathsome Have a Nice Day stickers appearing everywhere, <laughs> one of which actually appears later in this story. They decide the nameless beast needs to be punished, and they send the monster to Earth, which is, <laughs> as it's labeled here in the story, a slightly better place to raise kids. The monster wanders about, searching for sustenance, and he finds, to his joy, garbage. Coincidentally, that same garbage is in the midst of being collected. A funny exchange leads to the monster chasing after a sanitation worker, trying to return the worker's hat, who has been scared right out of it by the appearance of this monster. From there, we cut to the Dover household, where Sheila and Mitch are discussing their son, Stanley, and his overactive imagination and his dire need for friends. At this point, Stanley leaps from the cupboards, the overhead cupboards, mind you, snatches the box of Oxner donuts and flees the scene, narrating his spy adventures the whole way through. Stanley, who it is revealed during the conversation between Sheila and Mitch, is only five, but he leaves the house and happens upon some older kids playing baseball. They rather bluntly tell Stanley to get lost. An unexpected hit from the baseball game rolls past Stanley as he's moping away, and the ball tumbles into an open manhole cover. Trying to seek favor with the boys that are playing ball, Stanley goes into the sewers to retrieve the ball. Except in the sewer, the monster who is terrifying the neighborhood and has taken refuge in the sewer awaits. And the two strike up a conversation. Stanley then leaves the sewer to return the ball and lies to a police officer after returning said ball. The monster, regretting his inherent niceness, has a change of heart vowing to eat the boy, but instead, hearing the boy cover for him, finds his kindness bolstered. The two strike up a friendship, and Stanley Dover resolves to bring the monster home. The monster, in conversation with Stanley, suggests that perhaps the best path is sincerity. So Stanley asks his parents if he can keep a giant red talking dog with tusks. And his dad, or Mitch, says, a what? So imagining that this is Stanley's imagination just on hyperdrive, they agree to it. The end for now. Uh, I really liked this story. I got a kick out of this. Again, this was a big surprise. I wasn't familiar with these characters when I sat down for this podcast. But I, I, wrote, I read this one and then immediately tried to track down some of the older stories to sort of get some context. And I have read the first issue of the miniseries that came after this by the same writer, uh, which is delightful. It's Again, it has the same charm. I love the way Phil Foglio approaches these characters. I've also tracked down two of the original issues from the series back in the 60s. I, I have The Fox and the Crow, issue 108, which is the last issue of Fox and Crow before it was renamed. And then I have Stanley and his Monster issue 111, which was the second to last issue published. And they're good. They're very, they're very simple, sort of funny animal comics. There's like you know, you know, multiple stories in each one. Um, Arnold Drake wrote Stanley with a lisp, okay. uh, so that all of the S sounds he writes are TH sounds. And I'm gonna say that sounds a lot better than it reads. Sure. When you're trying to read dialogue that is deliberately misspelled like that, it's—I'm not wild about it. I, I liked the uh, the issues when Bob Oxner was writing it. It, it was just—I thought I thought it flowed better. 
I think the Foglio version in this story and in the miniseries also streamlines it because in the original version, there were two other supporting characters with Stanley and his monster. There was a tiny green leprechaun named Shaughnessy and a tiny green dwarf, sort of a German-Swedish dwarf called Schnitzel. So they spoke with these heavily pronounced dialects and, you know, these these accents and everything. So, I, I, like, some of the times reading those old ones was just kind of challenging because you're like, oh, what the heck are these people actually saying? Because yeah. the dialogue is, you know, written in this highly specified vernacular to make it, you know, give you the sounds of this. But still very charming stories. But, I, yeah, I, I don't know how you felt, but I adored this origin story. What would you think? Oh, I liked it a lot. And it actually is an origin story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love the setting, and we're introduced to, as you mentioned, the sort of trifecta of demons with, of course, I always find it funny the way they've depicted the Paradise Lost version of Lucifer Morningstar as this sort of angelic blonde character right. um, who will come back in uh, the Sandman and the Lucifer series. things. Actually, in the 1993 miniseries, Stanley and his Monster, that takes place after the Sandman story, Season of Mists. Okay. Uh, and in that story, Lucifer just abdicates. He's like, "I'm done running hell. You guys figure out who's gonna do, who's gonna run this show." And it right. ends up being the angels, the heavenly host, that take sort of custodian of like ownership of hell and kind of manage it. Uh, because the the Stanley and his monster miniseries opens with angels doing a like an inventory of all the demons that are in hell, and they're <laughs> like, "Oh, we're missing one." It's like, really? Eh, it's probably not gonna be a problem. And then it turns out that uh, that it's the monster spot. I loved it. I love that introduction. Um, and you mentioned the uh, "Have a Nice Day" stickers that that he's been putting all over hell. And the last one that we see, which is actually on Lucifer's back. Right, right. And when Lucifer banishes him to Earth, he's got a little demon holding a flashlight under his chin, like you used to do when you were a kid, telling yeah. spooky stories. Yes. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty fun. Yeah. No, it's great. Like the the humor works throughout the story. It's it's a great blending of humorous dialogue and situations with art that really sells it. The, I think Folio did a great job working on this, and uh, and and I think Keith Wilson and and John Workman's letters they both do a really good job of playing into the humor too. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's not a whole lot of real estate for them to expand with, but they certainly use what they have nicely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The segue is, and you point out too, like, okay, we're starting in hell. This doesn't seem like the right thing for a, for a funny kid story, but he's like, yeah, it's not a ne- very nice place. And then once we get to Earth, it's like, eh, it's slightly better. Yeah, slightly better. I love the scene where he accidentally freaks out the sanitation worker and like the, the he runs by the cop. Right, and the cop starts firing on him. Mm-hmm. A simple no would have sufficed. <laughs> And I also think they, they do a great job, and this was true of the old series, too. I like uh, Stanley's parents, too. They're very nice, and even in these short little pages, they're pretty well-drawn-out characters, and you get a sense they, they're not stupid, they're not neglectful, they care about Stanley, and that's actually a big factor, is that they think Stanley doesn't have any friends, and he's just right. he has too much imagination. Uh, in one of the old issues of Fox and Crow that I read, Stanley's dad tr- like writes the mayor, and he does this entire push to get a park built near their house so that other kids will come that he can, that can play with his son. But they also they're adults and they don't believe in monsters. So when right. when as you say when Stanley comes home, he's like, "Can I keep this giant magenta dog with tusks as my pet?" They're like, 
Sure, you do that, of course. <laughs> of course, son. Keep off the couch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What else? What, uh, what were some of your favorite parts of the story? Oh, man, the, really the whole thing. But yeah. Foglio does a, a nice job of emoting with the monster. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the expressions. He's, he's able to, to run loose because we don't have the frame of reference of a giant red demon to go, well, you know what? He drew that wrong. Right, right. Instead, it's it's all correct. It's all fun. And with that, he's able to then shape the world around the absurdity of this monster, which mm-hmm. just winds up making the whole story fun. And and the 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 parents and and I don't know, Stanley being five, five's kind of a reach for me, maybe eight, but you know, it is what it is. And that would explain, you know, the lisp that you mentioned in the previous stories or in the early stories. But within this, the context here, you know, being five, yeah, hey, kid, you're too small. No, you can't play ball with us type of thing. Right. Plays right into it all. And it gives the adults around Stanley an easy out for being condescending without being condescending. Mm-hmm. You know, they're talking to a kid in a manner that most adults do. Most adults treat kids as someone who is naive or less informed. And, and it's not intentional, but it just kind of happens naturally for a lot of adults. I just remembered, and I wonder if I had thought of this earlier, I would have looked this up. I don't know if you remember this, but in the late 80s, maybe, there was uh, like a stuffed animal character called My Pet Monster. It was like this blue thing with like horns. I think they actually made a movie about it, too. I don't know about the movie, but I I do remember the monster. Actually, one of my – that stuck around for a while. One of my girls had one of them, and you could – it was a doodle monster, and you could draw on him and oh, you know, okay. with markers and throw it in the wash, and the markers would clean up. Oh, the one the one I remember had like like fake plastic like chains that he could break apart and everything. Oh, really? Like, yeah, but yeah, I just remember, and I, I gosh, I, that scene because I I think the premise of that was maybe similar to this, and I wonder if there was any sort of being generous saying it was an homage to this property or if it was just. Uh, Something similar, yeah. It could have been a blatant ripoff, but I don't don't know. This story, when I read it, struck me as something that would have been perfect for the DC Nation shorts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you could have kept it going, you know, like the Animal Man bits. Yeah, absolutely. And you could have come back to it every so often. Yeah, I I wish... I wish DC would do more like with their all ages things and like some of those DC nation shorts and like cartoons, but also like comics for kids. And I think, I think you could do a lot with this. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's DC has a ton of properties that are just waiting to be delivered to a wider audience. I mean, there's this, there's captain carrot, the Rex story in this issue. It doesn't play to the same theme, but you could easily make a Rex, the wonder dog series, you know? Yeah. We talked about the Kevin Smith version, as yes. I remember, and I, I wanted to reread that, but I didn't get a chance. But as I remember that, in that story, we find out that Stanley, the boy, has a grandfather also named Stanley Dover, who's like an occult devil worshiper and tries to summon a demon. But because of some mistake in the spell, the demon is this monster who then attaches itself as the friend of the younger Stanley just because they have the same name. And then that Stanley Dover finds Oliver Queen when this was right, you know, Oliver Queen had been dead for a long time. This is when he comes back to life and he's like in a body without a soul. And the elder Stanley Dover is trying to transfer himself into Oliver Queen's young, virile body. 
there ends up being like a whole fight with a monster and everything and releasing the young Stanley from this control. So Right, and the monster does play a pretty pivotal role in that story. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't Jason Blood and the Demon Etrigan in that story too? Within the, the Quiver story, it's hard to find a DC character that isn't. <laughs> yeah. Sandman's in here. Kevin Smith was probably thinking this might be the only time I get to write in this universe. Let me play with all of the toys. Yep. Which is probably what it, I would do. Yeah, and DC went, okay. Yeah. Still bums me out that we didn't get a demon origin in this book at all. Yeah, that would have been good. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember the timing of the demon series that was, I want to say it was the early 90s. How uh, closely that may or may not overlap with this because the, the triumvirate at the beginning, Azazel, Belial, and Lucifer, Lucifer's the same. But I seem to recall Belial looking more Etrigani in the Etrigan series, or in the Demon series. I think so. I know there was a late 80s four-part miniseries, I think by Matt Wagner. Yeah, there was I want was to say that, that was in 88, maybe. Yeah. And then the regular, the ongoing series started in... 89, it looks like. That's when the ongoing series started? Uh, according to... Se- well, I'm not going to credit them <clears throat> according to a source online here uh <laughs> it was launched in 1990 okay whether or not that's entirely accurate but uh yeah so it would have been this is what april of 90 so there might have been some overlap but yeah. not necessarily very closely stitched together i'm not sure how closely the two editor te- editorial teams were communicating with each other right i don't even remember who the editor was on the demon proper but i do remember that series having a similar tone Mm -hmm. not necessarily as light as this story but it took the whole concept of well it's a demon from hell and made it kind of fun yeah yeah actually i'm gonna start tracking those down now i think i'm just talking myself into it (laughs) good job good thought um i i really enjoy this story this series, Secret Origins, has done. If it's done anything, it has introduced me to a lot of pleasant surprises, characters that I never gave much regard, properties or concepts that I had honestly never heard of before, and a lot of times I found stories that I really, really like. I enjoyed digging up those two back issues that I was able to find and playing around with those and. I can definitely see there's money to be made with this property. This could be a nice little animated short. This could be an all-ages comic book series. You could do you could do something with this property, and I think DC is leaving money on the table right now, not playing up with this, especially for younger kids. Yeah, and I, I think you're definitely onto something there, and I think that's part of DC's problem right now is they're they're playing to us. They're yeah. not playing to a wider audience as a whole. They're playing to the people that found comics in the 70s, 80s, early 90s right. and have now grown up and have arguably disposable income. Right. But really the things they're putting out now, they're trying to stay current with the other aspects of the DC Entertainment empire, yeah. which unfortunately just means more Batman, more Superman. We're starting to get more Wonder Woman, which is a good thing. That is a good thing. But it, at the expense of what? You know, I mean, look at what Marvel has done with what they've had. And I'm not saying Marvel's doing it great, but Marvel has dug a little deeper into the characters. Right. Back to Stanley and his monster. Um, recommended readings. I, I think uh-huh. we'd both say look at Green Arrow, the quiver, even though it's a very different take. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely a different take. And if you're looking for the lightheartedness that comes out of this, Quiver's not going to be your place you want to go. Although Quiver does present a very powerful Stanley story or monster story, at least. Yeah, 
if you can find the 1993 miniseries, I found issue one in a 50-cent bin. I doubt there's a big market for them right now, so you can probably find them cheap if you can find them. If you can dig out some of those really old versions, the one from the 60s with the fox and the crow, those appearances, those are fun. And, you know, you get a lot of, like, funny animal stories and things like that. They're silly. They're good for all ages. If you can find Stanley and his monster in any comic, I think it's it's worth checking out because it's it's a fun little pairing. And, and they make an appearance in the uh, Superman Batman series in a story called Sorcerer Kings. That's you know that whole series wound up collected eventually. That installment is written by Cullen Bunn and drawn by Chris Cross. Was that toward the end of the series? Because I think yes. I re- yeah, I haven't actually read it, but I've happened to cross it. I want to say I read the first. Six trade paperbacks of that. Okay. And uh, what was that? That was probably like up to like issue forty or something like that. So I know I know it went like over a hundred issues or something. So yeah, I, I think I have a few of them. I, I enjoyed it when Loeb and McGinnis were doing it, just for the sheer zaniness of it all. Right. Right. Yeah. But this one's like you said, fairly late in the run, and it does have. Why am I blanking on it? Pre New Fifty Two, but post. Judgment Day, Mystical Team, their name was... Oh, Shadow Pact? Thank you. Yep. Yeah, they're in the same story as well. Cool. And that's uh, that's Sorcerer Kings, and I'm trying to... It's Superman, Batman, 78 to 84. Cool. cool. Well, Doug, thank you very much for being on Secret Origins Podcast one more time. Well, thank you, sir, for having me. It's been fun coming back, and I'm really going to miss this. I, I, <laughs> you're going to miss it. Yeah, I, I can only I'm, imagine. I'm just going to go cry for a long time. <laughs> I imagine you're going to have fun recording 50. I don't remember what my life was like when I wasn't reading this comic and doing research for this. I don't... DC would uh, DC tried to revive it, but um, I didn't pick up much of that new 52-based one. I didn't either. So. It's to me that they, back to your point of them leaving money on the table, they could do a Secret Origins type digital first, 99 cents type of thing. You know, like they did with Adventures of Superman and yep. uh, Sensation Comics and whatever the Batman one was called. And that opens it wide up to me as a reader. Well, I want to buy Red Tornado and Demon and Ch- Challengers of the Unknown, but I don't necessarily need to read Superman. I, I agree. I, I wish they would do something like that. But, oh, well. Doug, where else can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? Um, Online, I am... I'm I'm back in the saddle, as it were, with MyGreatestAdventure80.blogspot.com, which I share information and releases with the fine guys from the Waiting for Doom podcast. Every new episode they put out, I put up a blog post, and I'll put in some posts in between. Additionally, I write for Comicosity.com, and then lastly, my oft-neglected but sometimes fun blog, Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures.blogspot.com, which I can rarely ever remember the name of. <laughs> you just start typing and the autofill recognizes what you're doing, and there you go. <laughs> the computers are smarter than us. Yeah, we know, we know. We, I know what you're thinking. Don't worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> Gives you a little pat on the head virtually. Yeah. Oh, you poor thing, you poor idiot. Let me <laughs> let me fill in this for you. Well, Doug, for the sixth and final time, thank you for being on Secret Origins Podcast. This was a treat. Thank you, Ryan. It truly was. And don't go away, listeners, because we've got another Secret Origin coming up after the break. Hey, who likes Wild Dog? Who likes the dog sound? <laughs> 
No. No, no, no. I'm taking this podcast seriously. There's no way that song will appear anywhere in the show or even the commercials. I'm doing this right. I'm FKA Jason of the Silver and Gold Podcast. On September 17, 2016, a new show will be appearing on the SNG feed. Wild Pod, a Wild Dog Podcast is a miniseries covering the DC Comics character that is sort of their answer to the Punisher, Wild Dog. I'll be covering the original four-issue miniseries, the 1989 special, and various other appearances of Wild Dog. Watch for it at SNGPod.com or the Silver and Gold feed on iTunes and Stitcher. Vance, why do we even own that CD? Dreams are nothing more than wishes And a wish is just a dream You wish to come true If only I could have a puppet I'd call myself so very lucky Just to have some company And my next guest... Oh, it's Shag again. Woohoo! Well, so let's see. Last time I said it was my seventh appearance on the show. Does this make it my eighth? No, same episode. Because if this made it eighth, then we would have to count Batgirl and Dr. Midnight, and that would just be... Then we could count Johnny Thunder. Oh, we could count oh. a bunch of other ones, too. So. <laughs> anyway, I guess it's fine that you're back for this one, because we're talking about the origin of Rex the Wonder Dog. So here to help me talk about man's best friend is my best friend, once more the irredeemable Shag. Aw, you're so sweet. You're so nice. What happened to the Ryan that was here earlier? He must have gone home. So I have a bizarre love affair with Rex. My perception of Rex's history was very, very warped. Now, I realize you're going to go through his uh, appearances and all that. I'm just going to steal a little bit of your thunder. You can still do it in a minute. But Rex, you know, was around all through the 50s, from 1952 to 1959. He had 46 issues of his own self-titled book. And that's it. Then he disappeared. He was gone and didn't show up again except in like um, one issue of Justice League, right, in like the 70s or, or I think – or early 80s, one or the other. Then he showed up in a backup strip in DC Comics Presents number 35 and whatever happened to Rex the Wonder Dog. And then he showed up in Who's Who. So here I was as a kid getting Who's Who. What is that? 1986. So I'm, I'm all of like 14 years old. And I was poring over every single page of Who's Who, much like I'm still doing 30 years later. And I fell in love with the Rex the Wonder Dog entry. And I just thought it was the greatest thing. I was like, oh, well, this is fantastic. And you see a Rex entry. And in the next page, you know, was well, – I'm, I'm making this up. I'm exaggerating. But, you know, then the next, a couple pages later, you get like a Superman entry, right? So they should be of equal importance. So in my mind – Rex was a big deal in the DC universe. 
I did not know that he hadn't really appeared in a comic in almost 30 years for the most part. So when a show called – the or a, a comic I should say called The Flash was being published and it was about the same time as The Flash TV series was on, on television, I started buying the book. It was during the, the Bill Messner Loeb's run leading up to issue 50. In fact, on the cover was a big stamp that would say, watch The Flash on CBS TV, which I just find hilarious that they had to say CBS TV. And anyway, that's where you would laugh. Ha, 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 ha. Perfect. Thank you. So I was reading Flash and they get to issue 46. And it's this story where Gorilla Grodd has taken over Central City or Keystone City or whatever it is. And all these animals, anthropomorphic animals are running around and doing stuff, working for Grodd. And the very last panel is some sort of animal. Maybe it's a chimp or a dog. I don't remember who's there working against Gorilla Grodd. And you see, not confronting him, but meeting him is this giant white dog. And the dog says, my name is Rex. I'm here to help. And, dude, I'm jumping up and down on the comic shop. I am punching the air. I'm like, Rex, hot damn. Yeah, Rex is here. Hot damn. This is going to be awesome. And nobody I knew at that point had any idea who Rex was. They're like, Rex? Rex who? I'm like, it's dude, it's, it, it's Rex the Wonder Dog. I mean, come on. Nobody knew who he, who he was. So who's who had warped my perception of what characters were actually important to the DC Universe and what weren't. Like, I still think Charlie Vickers was an important part of the pre-crisis DC Universe. <laughs> Apparently not. So I have an enormous amount of love for Rex the Wonder Dog. And I mentioned earlier he was in a Whatever Happened to It. It was in DC Comics Presents number 35. And Rob and I actually covered it on a recent episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, episode 169. And uh, it was written by Mike Tiffenbacher with art by Gil Kane. And I kid you not, I believe this is now Rob's absolute favorite single comic book story ever told. More than Justice League of America 200? It sounds like it, the way he talks about it. It's Rex the Wonder Dog. Lady Cop? We'll have to ask Rob right in and let us know. He Maybe he loves all his babies. I'm not sure. But it's Rex the Wonder Dog teaming up with Detective Chimp, and it is the most adorable, endearing it's, – it, first of all, it's Gil Kane art, and it's really good Gil Kane art. And Mike Tiffenbacher just gets how to make a, a fun eight-page story. Bobo and Rex go on an adventure. They fight alligators. They catch criminals. They drive a boat. <laughs> It's it's a hoot. So um, Rex has a very, very special place in my heart. I'm going to cut all of that out because you went through the publication history, and that's really what I live for. No, that's okay. You did it all wrong before, so you might as well get it all wrong again. No, I'll just I'll just repeat the fact that you know Rex the Wonder Dog had his own series that started in 1952. It ran for 46 issues. Uh, it was called Rex the Wonder Dog for the first two issues, and then it became the Adventures of Rex the Wonder Dog for three through 46. After the stories that you were talking about, and after that issue of The Flash, uh, later in the 90s, Gerard Jones, who wrote this story, and Mark Wade, who edited the story in The Secret Origins, used Rex the Wonder Dog again when Green Lantern issue 30 and 31 crossed over with The Flash 69 and 70 for the Guerrilla Warfare storyline, again with Guerrilla Grodd. Hmm. So. You know what? I, I It also shocked me when I looked at his publication history. Apparently he was in all 19 issues of Superboy and the Ravers. But nobody read that book except for, like, one guy, and he did his own custom action figures to boot, by the way. But um, so I did not even know that Rex was in that comic. (laughs) All right. You ready to get into this one? You mean ready for me to sit back and listen to you do it? Yes. (laughs) That's what I meant. (laughs) All right. On to this story 
From out of the flames of war springs a four-footed symbol of democracy, a snarling menace to evil, a fur-ruffling avenger of crime, and a tail-wagging, face-licking ally to all that is good and decent. For this is The Birth of Rex the Wonder Dog. It's written by Gerard Jones, penciled by Paris Cullens, inked by Gary Martin, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Tom Zuko, and edited by Mark Wade and Michael Urie. Rex the Wonder Dog was created by John Broom and Gil Kane. In the early days of World War II, a young boy named Danny plays with his adorable puppy Rex in their home in the town of Libertyville. Danny's father, Dennis, an army lieutenant, excuses himself to go downstairs to a top-secret government lab run by Dr. Anabolus. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Dr. Anabolus has created a wonder serum that he will inject into a 90-pound scrawny but righteous American to turn him into a muscle-bound, square-jawed, super-strong, super-agile wonder soldier. The problem is the Dr. Serum is untested on humans. He needs an animal test subject, and Lieutenant Dennis volunteers his son's dog, Rex. The doctor and senior army officers are shocked that Dennis would so eagerly sacrifice the family dog for an experiment that might well kill him. But Dennis reminds them, it's for the war effort. And when you say war effort, the font changes and red, white, and blue stripes fly out of the word balloon. (laughs) Dennis brings Danny and Rex to a government facility and explains that Rex is going to get a shot that will either turn him into a wonder dog or kill him. Or possibly a third thing, like some kind of mutated monster or he could lose all of his fur, or could have no effect at all, or really anything. They have no idea, but it doesn't matter. All Danny's tears and protests won't deter his father's mission, because, after all, it's for the war effort. Cue different font and stripes. Dennis takes Danny and Rex into the lab, past a security checkpoint manned by a soldier with a uh, strangely German-sounding accent, Rex and Danny are both suspicious of the guard. Don't you mean Yiddish? (laughs) Well, yeah. Rex and Danny are both suspicious of the guard, but Dennis tells him that it's unpatriotic to regard someone with fear and suspicion because he doesn't share their Anglo accent and customs, which would be remarkably progressive thinking if it weren't also dangerously naive in this instance. Anyway... They take Rex to the lab, and Dr. Anabolus injects the puppy with the Wonder Serum. With a dash of Kirby Crackle, adorable puppy Rex transforms into powerful, full-grown Rex, whose thought balloons change from pictograms to complete sentences. The Wonder Serum worked. Dr. Anabolus demands the army bring him a human test subject, but the next human to enter the lab is the soldier from the checkpoint. And to everyone's surprise, he sounded German because he was, in fact, a Nazi spy. He guns down the the scientist, but before he can turn his gun on Danny or the others, Rex pounces on the evil Nazi and, well, if this was a different type of comic, you can imagine the dog ripping the Nazi throat out, but he just kind of knocks the spy unconscious. The senior army officers promise Dr. Anabolus that his legacy will live on in the race of wonder soldiers they'll produce with this formula. Unfortunately, the doctor reveals that he never wrote the formula down. It's all in his head, and then he dies. Dennis tells his son that Rex the Wonder Dog will be the best canine operative the army has ever seen, and after the war, Dennis, Danny, and Rex will travel around the world having crazy adventures, the likes of which you can read about in the Adventures of Rex the Wonder Dog comic. The end. Shag, your thoughts? Well, first off, the art is absolutely adorable. Mm-hmm. If you're going to get someone to do a comedy 
goofy comic, Paris Collins is your guy. He does wonderful cartoony art. I love the way he draws the different humans, the characters with the giant chins or the goofy looks and expressions or almost you know comical the like the thought balloons that you get from Rex that are just pictograms are absolutely adorable. Paris Collins is a perfect choice, and Gerard Jones gives us some rather—I mean, some really funny gags. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I like the one where they're like they're going over the plan for the, the Wonder Soldier, and they're like, "Amazing! It's incredible!" And then the doctor goes, "Oh, well, they're only drawings on a wall." And he's like, "Yes, but where did you learn to draw so well?" I mean, some of the stuff genuinely is funny. So uh, from that perspective, it's you know very successful in that way. Now, but in, in, as far as his name, uh, Analibus or whatever, an- an- Anabolus, I think that's probably a play on analogous. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, my guess because he, he looks like Einstein and he's clearly the doctor from, uh, you know, Captain America. Right. So you uh, praise the jokes. You praise the art. Yeah. But. Oh, I freaking hate this thing. <laughs> I hate this comic with a passion of a thousand burning suns. And yes, Frank, I realize suns don't have passion, but I I can't stand this story. It makes me so mad because again, I love Rex. I love the the unbridled joy of Rex. I love the just innocent lassie kind of nature of Rex. And making him a parody of Captain America, unless this was going to lead to an ongoing funny book. That was going to be, you know, just hysterical, and this is a reimagining leading to that. This went nowhere, so it just makes me mad. It's because, like, if you go and look up Rex's origin, it gives you this. And, and even on Wikipedia, they say that it was a parody. Yet that has not been written out of Rex's histor- history. I would like to write that out of Rex's history right now. Thank you very much. I don't hate the story, but when I got to the end, I was, I was like, this doesn't feel right. No. And I think it's like all of the like as a parody of Captain America's origin transferred onto a dog character, it's brilliant. Like you said, the jokes are really funny. The art is cute but adorable, but, it, like, striking too. Like, it, it's really well packaged. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, like, it's not just a parody. It's like a satire. It's a it's a satire of politics and the military of this particular time with their emphasis on the war effort as if that is an excuse to do kind of a horrible thing. Yeah. Taking this kid's dog away and telling him that we're going to give him a shot. And it, by the way, it might kill your dog, but it's for the greater good, we say, like, enchanting, as it, like we're all zombies. So it's like, I was like, it feels like it's like un- the subtext of this is very dark and kind of a, a scathing satire that uh, just doesn't feel like it's like, why are you, de- like, you can tell this story and you can tell it really well, but don't besmirch Rex the Wonder Dog. With yeah. this story, and I think that's probably what your problem is too. I think we we're kind of on, on the same wavelength there. Is that this could be a really great story, but you're telling it at the expense of a beloved, wholesome childhood, iconic type of cute humor animal character. And I think you helped me just now crystallize some of it. Like if if it didn't have the dark horrible nature of it like you know the dog could get horribly mutilated that kind of stuff then it could work almost as like a fun sort of you know in the vein of an archie book where it's just gag after gag after gag Mm -hmm. and maybe that would have been an easier pill to swallow again especially if there was a plan to spin off a rex fun you know all ages book but that there's a dark creepy edge to it and that it is satire of something and if you don't know the core the, the base story of captain america it doesn't work is is probably again the darkness i think is what probably is getting to me mm-hmm. i mean the fact I that do, I, like even archie i can read a, a goofy archie comic and love it and have a blast with it because i get the humor in it this has such a dark edge you couldn't give this to a kid to read 
Right, exactly. Yeah, and if you don't know that story of Captain America, then, oh, by the way, a Nazi murders a guy in the story, just, like, shoots a guy. He's sitting there bleeding to death on the page. It's like, uh, how, how, how am I supposed to feel about this? It's so, like an all-ages book for adults. Right. And I just which think doesn't it, make sense. I just think like the audience or the intention of this was wrong. Again, like this this could have been a funny satire, but like I, I just feel like they had to bring down a wholesome character that should never be the subject of satire in order to tell the story. And also just one one thing is they Jones like screwed up the rule of threes with the war effort thing when we have that where you know you say it becomes big font and you get the, the stripes the red, white, and blue on the side of it, they only do it twice. And that's the kind of gag that you need to do three times for it to work. Oh, no, they did do it three times. There's the first time with the soldier saying the war mm-hmm. effort. Then he's telling the kid the war effort, and then the dog is thinking. Oh, uh, but the dog but it doesn't have the stripes, so maybe it's just a... True. It's either... But it's still a font. Yeah. But, and, and I know I've been very harsh on this story. But, again, I do want to go back to what I said before. The art is great. The art is beautiful. And, again, some of the gags are damn funny. I just wish it was a different tale, and if they'd gone for a kid-friendly sort of, or an all-ages sort of book, I wish it had been an all-ages book. I think it's, our problem with it is almost more of an emotional problem. Like, this Mm. feels, like, this does, if I'm going to compare it to something, I'm just kind of rambling, but if I'm going to compare it to something recently, sort of the way I felt after Man of Steel. And like, okay, okay, not, not to that level, but a lot of people were like, that was a really good Superman movie. And I was like, I got to the end of that. I was like, that didn't feel like a Superman movie to me. That didn't feel like the story that you should tell with Superman. This doesn't feel like the story you should tell with Rex, the wonder dog. It might still be technically speaking, a well-told story with a slightly bent kind of commentary on the military culture of this era. And that might be interesting, but it just, there's a disconnect between the subject of the story that I'm supposed to be recognizing and falling in love with that's not getting presented correctly. Yeah, this just doesn't seem like... I, I don't want to spend more time with this Rex the Wonder Dog. Right. So, so instead, go read those Flash issues, Flash 47 and 48, mm-hmm. uh, or 46 and 47, and then go find the Guerrilla Warfare story and enjoy those. And, and if you've really got quarters to spare, pick up Superboy and the Ravers. <laughs> <laughs> or you, you Michael Bailey, <laughs> or find Rob Kelly's favorite story, that issue of uh, what or DC Comics presents with whatever happened to Rex the Wonder Dog. Yes, DC Comics presents number thirty-five. Or if you want to hear us gush about it again, Fire and Water Podcast number one sixty-nine. Oh, such a great story! Yeah. Any final thoughts on Rex the Wonder Dog before we go? Well, I guess I just have to say I'm happy to be here and help you, Ryan, for the war effort. <sighs> I'm going to have to come up with some sort of sound effect for this now. <laughs> All right, Shag, where else can people find you online in the podcastosphere if they want to get in touch with you? Where where can you be tracked down? Well, I, uh, I'm at the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which is the equivalent of the Circle K on a Saturday night by yourself sitting on the curb by choice. But you can find me there on the Who's Who podcast, the Aquaman and Firestorm podcast, the Justice League International Blahaha podcast. You can find me also on the, the occasional, very occasional Hero Points podcast. And you can find me here on Secret Origins apparently quite a bit and uh, kind of bumming my way around the network as a whole. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter as Firestorm Fan, and uh, I'm everywhere you want to be. 
you make it sound nice, but it really just comes off as ominous and dangerous to me. <laughs> I'm also running amok in America and going around and meeting tons of people from the Fire and Water Podcast community, or and not even Fire and Water Podcast, but the podcasting community, which has been awesome. That, that's true. Actually, if you're listening to this, there's a good chance that Shag is in your city looking for you at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually quite true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Shag... Thank you very much for like the 17th time or however many times you've recorded on this one. Thank you very much. It is always a treat to record with you and to, to share these stories. Uh, this is great. I look forward to coming back and helping you cover the letters page. <laughs> Will do. Listeners, we are not done yet, if you can believe it. Oh, no, there is a fourth story in this issue. We're going to take another break, get Shag out of here, just Febreze the shit out of this place. <laughs> When we come back, the origin of the Trigger Twins. Don't go away. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it. From 1938 to the present day, from the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com Fourth and final story of Secret Origins 48, the Western heroes known as the Trigger Twins. And here to help me, I don't know, rustle up this origin? <laughs> That's probably not the right word, but whatever. My last guest this episode is the host of Superman Forever Radio and one of the hosts of the Giant Superman podcast. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Bob Fisher. How are you, Bob? I am fine. Thank you, Ryan, for inviting me. This is uh, this is fun. I'm looking forward to this. Talking funny books, but not superhero. It's a little bit different. It's, it's yeah. a little bit outside your ballywick. But uh, thank yeah. you very much for graciously accepting to be on this episode. I, I listened to your shows, and I really wanted to have you on before this podcast goes away. Well, um, thanks. When I asked if you would help me cover the origin of the Trigger Twins, you <laughs> you'd right. never read any one of their stories before. And actually, no. neither had I at the time. Right. Uh, so what was your familiarity with the Western genre in general and with Western comics in particular? 
Well, it's it's interesting because when you did ask, uh, you were kind of talking trigger twins and general Western stuff. So I kind of piped in, mm-hmm. but primarily because as a kid in my generation, and I think that's kind of what we have to go here, is that uh, I'm a little older than maybe some of the podcasters. I mean, I watched the George Reeves show, for example, in real time. So, <laughs> you know, in first run, so. But as was a that, kid, was that before Instagram was a thing? Yeah, actually, just slightly before. I think Phyllis took her first. Phyllis Coates took the first me and got that up on Instagram. The <laughs> okay. little, but uh, but yeah, it 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 was one of those things. If you were a kid of the late fifties into actually the mid sixties, we didn't wear a lot of superhero T shirts. There weren't you know a lot of that going around. Mm-hmm. But we all had Mattel cap guns, and we all played Western. It was just part of your everyday stuff. I wore a cap gun for years and watched every single genre, Western genre TV show of that time period. And it dominated the TV schedule. You have to remember now in 19, say, 56, 7, 8, all the way into the early 60s, the Western genres totally dominated the TV viewing. And there was really only three networks. Uh And Every single night, there were at least four Westerns on every channel you could watch. Some were half hour, some were full hour. But as a kid, not only did I watch all of those TV shows, I had my favorites, Have Gun, Will Travel, starring Richard Boone as Paladin, Mm -hmm. my favorite of all time. But not only did I watch all of those shows and go, of course, to all the John Wayne movies and all Western movies, but, but also reading the comic books and Every TV show, or at least most of the TV shows of the time, of the late 50s, early 60s, had corresponding comic books. Some of the comics came after, or well, actually most of the comics came after the TV show. But even characters like Roy Rogers and Hopalong Cassidy and uh, Gene Autry and, mm-hmm. and typical movie-type cowboys had Saturday morning cowboy TV shows, and they also had comic books. In those days, I was collecting as many uh, Western comic books as I was superhero comic books. My my weekly allowance, if there wasn't Superman or a Batman or a Justice League or something that I wanted for my 10 or 12 cents, there was uh, a Western, whether it be Lone Ranger, Zorro, or, you know, whatever. So I was, again, as much into the Western genre as a little kid as I was into the superhero genre. Hmm. I have to say, like, my one real experience with Have Gun, Will Travel is from the movie Stand By Me, where the boys are singing the theme song. Yes! Yes! (laughs) That's always what I think whenever I hear of Paladin or Have Gun, Will Travel. I think of that scene where the boys are just walking through the field singing that. Um, Well, I can't recommend that show enough. (laughs) It is the kind of show... Uh, and I won't go into a huge thing and take all your time, but uh, in 30 seconds, if you like Batman, if you like the superhero genre, if you like the secret identity type genre, that show always opened 99% of the time. The show opened with Richard Boone, the star, in his 1880s and 90s fancy duds, all dressed up, you know, really classy. He lived in a high-end San Francisco hotel. He dated uh, the best-looking women, ate the best food, and he would read something in the newspapers And he, because he read newspapers from all over the country. He would read something in the newspaper that piqued his fancy, interested him. He'd open his wallet. He'd pull out a card that said, have gun, will travel, wire paladin, San Francisco. 
and he'd put it down on that newspaper article and then his music would th- theme music would start. It was just incredible. And go to a commercial, you come back and now he's not in fancy duds anymore. Now he's wearing an all black outfit and he's got a gun and he's going to go take care of business. It was just an amazing show. Uh, it's out there. Uh, you can get it on DVD. You can get box sets. There is even several of the episodes are available. Uh, it's a little sampling on YouTube. They're just incredible. They make me squeal even today. <laughs> you sold me. I'm going to have to check those out. Oh, um, good. Yeah, certainly I'm of a, a different generation. And by the time I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, the Western genre had pretty much faded into nothing. I mean, there were hardly yeah, pretty any much. Western comics. No. If they were, it was sort of like a novelty. So right. I wasn't immersed in the Western genre. And because I didn't see it a lot, I, I never really had a draw to it. I never had a pull to it. But whenever I did see like a Western movie or something, I always enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I I remember like the one that I think watching at the earliest age and really enjoying it was the movie Tombstone, um, which again, is a 90s movie. Um, My favorite, what I consider my favorite Western movie, which doesn't actually take place in the Southwest, it takes place in New Jersey in the 1970s, is Copland. Uh, the movie with Sylvester Stallone and oh yeah, it's it's a Western just in a different setting. But like one of my favorite TV shows of all time is the show Deadwood, the HBO show from the early 2000s. That's in my top five shows of all time. But I still, it's weird. I I, I love these movies. I love uh, you know Real Bravo. I love the TV shows. I oh Real Bravo is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. It's so real and campy at the same time. You've got music that you shouldn't have in a western, but it works. You've got the young Ricky Nelson yep. with the <laughs> with the Mister Cool Dean Martin, yeah, and of yeah. course John Wayne's opening scene. The first time we see him is kicking over a spittoon and basically <laughs> pistol beating uh, a couple of guys. It's it's a great, great, great movie. It is but, actually uh, the first Blu-ray that I ever got was Rio Bravo. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I got it because it was cheap. And I was like, I want to I want to see like if the transfer to, from DVD to Blu-ray is really special. And I got that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, that's great a great, movie. great movie. That's yeah, that's great. You know, and the, the nice thing about uh, I think one of the things I enjoy about the Western uh, as a genre is similar to uh, science fiction. You can tell stories about topics that you don't want to just blatantly come out and preach to somebody or you don't want to hit somebody over the head with it. Mm-hmm. But you can use the genre to tell that story of whatever it is, of, of greed or racism or pregnancy or whatever the topic might be. And that's another reason why I, I enjoyed Have Gun Will Travel. They, they touched on a lot of social issues couched in good versus evil of the Western. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a very mutable genre because it has a sort of look and aesthetic, a, a sense of place, and there yes. are certainly tropes that go with it, but not necessarily a definitive story structure. Although, I mean, I guess right. I guess mo- I, you think of most Western stories is about ultimately bringing order back to a lawless situation, right? But even within the genre itself. It can go from everything from uh, which has been on my mind lately uh, because of Gene Wilder's death. You can go all the way from a Blazing Saddles comedy that gets the points and the messages and stays within the genre all the way to Clint Eastwood's uh, last Western, I think, Unforgiven, Unforgiven. which was just amazing. So 
two entirely different forms uh, on the spectrum, but uh, and then throw stuff like uh, Rio Bravo that we talked about, and and the Clint, the multitude of Clint Eastwood terrific outlaw Josie Whale. Right. I mean, I don't want to get started on Clint Eastwood. We'll <laughs> no, be here all night. But, but, all but, the spaghetti uh, westerns, but even like musical yeah. westerns. And yes. like getting back to like Ricky Nelson and guys like that, like that, that was almost a subgenre of it. So, well, that was, and before even Rio Bravo, that's even based on uh, or continuing a great tradition of what I mentioned earlier: the Gene Autry and the Roy Rogers and the Hopalong Cassidy movies of of the uh, '40s and '50s. All would break out into song at any time, any place. It could be a campfire where it's been a rough day of, of rustling cows, but one of those cowboys is going to pull a guitar out of his bag and they're going to sit around and 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 the next thing you know you've got this incredible music which uh again you, you guys should look into that if you have any interest in westerns at all you won't waste an afternoon with uh some of the movies that feature roy rogers or some of these guys because you also are going to get the the big time western swing music of uh sons of the pioneers and and just so much really 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 cool music and it seems to work for some reason and in those Roy Rogers and Gene Autry movies, they were able to have the thing take place in the Southwest, but mix this weird genre of, well, there's a 1940s Jeep, but seems like most people are still riding horses all over the place. But some of the people have cars. Some of the people have telephones. Some don't. It's this weird mix, and they, and they make it work for some reason, or... Maybe they make it work because I was 12. But, <laughs> but uh, either way, they're, they're, uh, you, you could do worse on an afternoon than dig up a few of those old Western movies and TV shows. Yeah. Bringing it back to the Trigger Twins for the purposes of this story, like I said, at the time when we agreed to do this one, neither of us had read any Trigger Twin stories. I was able to find a couple of uh, comics that reprinted some of theirs, uh, and that'll take us into the publication history for these characters. The Trigger Twins first appeared in the story Two-Fisted Justice, published in All-Star Western number 58 back in 1951. For the rest of the decade, the Trigger Twins maintained a regular feature in All-Star Western until issue 116 published in 1960, three issues before the series' cancellation. Those 59 issues pretty much made up their whole history. In 1968, Showcase issue 72 did a spotlight on Western heroes, including the Trigger Twins, by reprinting their story from All-Star Western 101. Then in 1973, DC released the Trigger Twins one-shot comic that reprinted three of the Twins' stories, first published in All-Star Westerns 94, 81, and 103. Those are the two comics that I was able to track down. The first new adventures of the Trigger Twins came out in 1986 when Roy Thomas used them in All-Star Squadron 54 and 55 as part of the tie-in to the Crisis on Infinite Earths. After the crisis, a new modern version of the Trigger Twins debuted during the Night Quest story arc of Detective Comics. These twins, however, were criminals and bank robbers. They were killed during the final crisis, then both sets of Trigger Twins were resurrected as Black Lanterns during the Blackest Night event. 
And that's pretty much it. That's all I got in terms of their publication <laughs> history. Do you know of any other appearance that they might have had? Uh, no. In fact, I I didn't know they were part of Blackest Night. I didn't remember that. I must have I must, must have missed that I, episode. I think that was one of the weird like Blackest Night. They had their like they resurrected their dead issues. There were like eight or nine like comics that had been canceled in the past that they re-released another issue of. And I think mm. one of those was called Weird Western Tales. And I think they appeared in that one. Oh, okay. Um, all right, then. Let's look at the secret origin of the Trigger Twins, which is written by William Mesner Loeb's, illustrated by Trevor Von Eden, lettered by Tim Harkins, colored by Juliana Ferrer, and edited by Mark Wade and Michael Urie. The story is narrated by Wayne Trigger, who says that he and his brother Walt were born on an auspicious night in 1839 when the moon appeared to have two rings on it. Ma and Pa Trigger were alone with no doctor or preacher to preside over the birth, and no one bothered to note which child was born first. While the boys may have looked identical, it was easy to tell one Trigger from the other while they were growing up, based on their actions and behavior. Wayne was quiet and introspective, while his brother Walt was wild and adventurous. Wayne liked to read books while Walt explored the caves near their house looking for outlaw booty. Walt's wild streak even extended to stealing pies, though Wayne notes that Walt had an uncanny knack for talking himself out of trouble. Twenty years after the Trigger Twins were born, the United States went to war with itself, and the brothers joined the army. With Walt's natural charisma and daring, he was quickly promoted to the rank of lieutenant, while Wayne's quiet thoughtfulness served him well peeling potatoes as a lowly private. One day, the brothers discovered, to their mutual shock, that quiet and introverted Wayne was a deadly accurate shot. The brothers were ambushed by a rebel patrol when Wayne quick drew his pistol, killing five of the enemy, then gunned down four more with his rifle. The rest of the patrol surrendered. The Trigger Twins brought their captives back to camp, and Walt, with his larger-than-life personality, took full credit for single-handedly dismembering the rebel patrol and saving his brother. After the war, Wayne Trigger went home to Rock City to take over the family store that had been built atop the old cave system the boys discovered in their youth. Walt, meanwhile, took the misappropriated reputation for his marksmanship on tour and traveled the Southwest Territories as a celebrity gunhawk. Over the years, the legend of Walt Trigger grew while Wayne courted a girl named Linda and helped build Rock City into something respectable. Then one day, the notorious Groton gang showed up, terrorizing the townsfolk and either killing or driving away five sheriffs in four weeks. Wayne volunteered to be the new sheriff, but the town didn't want him. They wanted his brother, the legendary gunfighter Walt Trigger. Walt Trigger accepted the position of sheriff of Rock City and goes about provoking Big Bill Groton's gang. Wayne confronts him, reminding him which of the two brothers is the real sharpshooter, and that Groton is likely to kill Walt and then destroy all of Rock City just because he can. Walt accuses his brother of being jealous of Walt's reputation and storms off. To prove he's every bit the legend people think he is, Walt challenges Bill Groton to a gunfight at noon. Wayne's wife, Linda, tells him what's happening and thanks him for being the cool and cautious brother. Read, not the hero. That gets to Wayne, who won't let his brother go to his death. Using the caves beneath the town, Wayne sneaks from his store to the sheriff's office and borrows an identical version of Walt's jacket. He loads up with as many guns as he can carry and heads out to meet the Groton gang, who assume the sheriff has come to die early. When they throw down, Wayne Trigger goes to work. He wipes out Gunner Niles, Torp Jensen, and Moe's Grease as quickly as it took me to read their names, and pegs the Swede and Mexican Duke Daigle die right after. 
the gang regroups and charges Wayne Trigger, who mows down O'Brien, Stinky Porker, the brothers Dink and Abe Latham, and some other nameless outlaws. The last members of the gang try to run, only to come face-to-face -face with the real sheriff of Rock City, Walt Trigger. And while Walt may not be the hand at gunfighting his brother is, the enemies are close enough for him to blow them away easily. Only Big Bill Rotten survives the initial onslaught and staggers back to Wayne. In his confusion at seeing identical sheriffs, he notes that Wayne isn't wearing a badge. Thus he assumes, rightly, that the Trigger is Wayne, the store owner, and concludes wrongly, that Wayne is the lesser gunfighter. It's the last mistake Bill Groton makes as Wayne Trigger shoots him dead. In the aftermath, the brothers shake hands and agree that the element of surprise could be invaluable in defending their home territory. Thus, they allow the legend of Walt Trigger to grow while Wayne slips back into his quiet, unassuming existence. Still, whenever threats demand more than one brother's action, the Trigger twins will ride out to bring law to the land. And thus is the origin of the Trigger Twins. So, Bob, what did you think of the story? <laughs> I liked your synopsis better than my original reading of the story. Uh, actually, my first thought was kind of, you know, uh, a Western hawk and dove, if you're kind of, you know, mm -hmm. fairly new to comics and don't know anything. But, but, you know, originally I thought it's just too many cliches. It's just too many but I think the ending um, was actually kind of interesting. I don't know. I'm, again, now I'm having mixed feelings. I thought we'd be, I was going to just really make all kinds of fun of it after reading it uh, in my notes. But then I really like your synopsis. Your synopsis <laughs> made it sound like, wow, I want to see this. This is a good show. I think the story is maybe better than it has a right to be because – like, I agree. Like, I, th I think the premise of the story did not intrigue me at all. Right. Like, and after reading these other stories, I was like, okay, they're twins. One of them is the better shot, but he has to remain hidden. Why? Yeah. Why? And, and in the old stories that we read there, it's always a really contrived kind of stupid reason. So I think the premise for these characters doesn't hold up to really harsh scrutiny or, or really any kind of scrutiny. But I think this story, at least, is is relatively interesting. Um, yes, and, that's and, what I agree with you a hundred percent on that part. And I, I think maybe it's because this part, like we're we're not seeing the gimmick of oh, you know, they have to trade places and they have to maintain the secrecy of who's the real sheriff and who's not. We're not seeing that play out. I think that's the part of the characters that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and really is kind of dumb and unnecessary. But getting to that part of just seeing the story of these two brothers who, yeah, it's cliche. One is super outgoing. The other is all in his head. Yeah, one is, you know, uh, kind of a screwball and the other one is like really cautious and, and well-mannered. And it, it is very cliche, but I liked the second half of the story when they actually, they have their confrontation and we see a moment of these two brothers yelling at each other over the mistakes of their past and kind of just, you know, accusing each other of making poor life decisions. And, yeah, oh, and, I agree. That was when the, that was when the, uh, I think the story really got interesting is when Wayne, the quieter brother, the one we're hearing it through, who's actually telling this story, when he makes the decision, enough is enough, and he confronts his brother. I mean, he's got his apron on. It's, a, it's actually a fun graphic. That's why I was thinking I would actually wouldn't mind seeing that scene played out because Walt is kind of acting like a jerk. He's just laid back. And because he's always been able to talk his way out of trouble, mm -hmm. 
He's never really had to confront it when his brother wasn't around. Even in the war, it was his brother that saved them, and he took all the credit for it. I think that's the part that really bothered me the most about this. I think that the two brothers could have been totally different. The same thing, one aggressive, outgoing, maybe not as competent a shooter as the quieter, more reserved brother. But I don't think he had to make the older brother a jerk. Yeah. Or not the older one. That I'm, I'm, it seems. I think it seems because he he seems to be the guy who does everything first. He seems to brother right. to be the brother who always leads in a situation. I guess it's right. easy to assume that he would have been the older one just because of <laughs> I don't know right. thematic elements. <laughs> yes, yeah, but so, it's kind of weird that they do that. Yeah, and maybe this is sort of what I, the conclusion that I came to is. I'm not interested in reading the stories of the Trigger Twins. But I just really liked this one story. I don't think these characters necessarily hold up to having their own series. But if you just get one good story, I think this is one good story. And it really starts in the second half, like when they have that moment together. When you're like, Walt, everything always came easy for him. He never really had to try that hard. Everything is just so effortless. And He always got credit for it, and he was always able to talk his way into and out of trouble. Right. And and Wayne throws it in his face. It's like you're not ready for this. Your your actions right. are going to get a lot of people, not just yourself, a lot of people hurt. And Walt's like, well, you're just jealous. You could have had my life if you just if you ever like you know picked your head up and tried to do make, <laughs> be something bigger. Right. And and I think out of that confrontation, Walt goes and does something extremely reckless. And he's in an emotional state. When I mean, we we only hear it secondhand from Linda, but I can imagine that scene where he's pissed off at his brother. And he takes yes. it out by pissing off Bill Groton, and that leads to the, okay, now these guys are going to kill you. And of course, the criminal isn't going to abide by any sort of code of honor. <laughs> He's going to ambush the sheriff. Of course so, he is. And we end, like, the last two pages are this really cool, like, you know, shootout and everything that we get most of it through text. You know, there it's illustrated, but I would have loved to see that drawn out. Like, yeah, like, I, I would have liked to see this story given a full issue to develop. Right. Like, I, I would right. love this as a 20-page comic story. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. Um, because while, like you said, you don't really see the death on screen here or on panel, but you see um, the brothers shooting at you almost as if you're the bad guy. Uh-huh. And and there's a couple of really good scenes, but it, it – and it moves so quick. It's so fast. It's two pages mm-hmm. of basically Wayne – blowing away this bad gang and then his brother showing up at the inn and taking out one or two by surprise. Yep. But this scene actually reminded me of a very modern movie, an unwestern type movie, in that there's a good scene where the remaining bad guys that he hadn't finished killing, the rest of the gang, after the first round of shooting stops, the gang starts to approach him and run at him thinking, well, he's used both of his six guns, he's used his rifle, He's got nothing left, but we as the viewer see um, uh, Wayne reaching to his back to pull out another gun that he's got in his back. I mean, that's right out of Matrix or, you know, right into modern uh, movie telling where they just keep pulling guns out of their just guns just keep coming out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And this guy just kept pulling out guns and pulling out guns. But I think they set it up. Most comics or places wouldn't even set it up that he had a whole lot of guns on him. So it would have been a surprise that he kept pulling out guns. But they actually set it up when he went and got his brother's uh, shirt 
and packed as many guns. And they tell us right in the text, as many guns as he could basically get on his body. So uh, it was nice to see him use all of them. (laughs) Although I think one was a little questionable because after the first volley, when he shoots the first three guys really quickly, then pulls his rifle out, shoots the next four guys... I thought it made some comment about, and the remainders were running away, and he was saying, oh, you're not going to get away quite that easily. Bam, 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 bam. So he may have kind of finished off the gang, not all of them coming at him. Yeah. Old West. What did you think of the art throughout this story? (laughs) That's a good question, too, because um, surprisingly, I liked it better than I thought I was going to because of certain scenes like that of him reaching in his back, the scene of the two brothers confronting each other, particularly when Wayne walks up, he's still got his like general store (laughs) apron on, but he's got his gun strapped over top of it and it's slung low on his hip. And he says, and he outdraws his own brother and puts the gun in his brother's face and says, I could outdraw you so much. You, you're going to get everybody killed. You're going to ruin this. I think the artwork from right there, and then picking up into these last scenes really made the story. Mm-hmm. The first part, he looks a little like Jimmy Olsen. There's a couple of close-ups where <laughs> I thought, oh, it's Jimmy Olsen, freckles and all. So you can kind of picture the brothers looking kind of like Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. But yeah, I think overall, it, it, it didn't t- take me out of the story. It, didn't, it wasn't terrible, I thought. What would you think? I probably liked it more than I – well, I know for a fact that I liked it more than I expected to – mostly because the art is by Trevor Von Eden. And mm-hmm. anybody who has listened to my podcasts, both Secret Origins and my Black Canary podcast, know that I am generally very critical of Trevor Von Eden based mm-hmm. on the material that I've had to review. And I always preface this by saying I love his work on Black Lightning. I loved his work on the Green Arrow and Black Canary backup strips in World's Finest in the 70s. I love those. I love those. I love yeah, the, I agree. I love the right. bla- uh, I love the Batman Annual that he did. I think it was Annual number eight, maybe, mm-hmm. with Mike mm-hmm. W. Barr. Yeah, I love think you're those right. stories. Yeah, but I've never gotten to review those stories on a podcast. <laughs> right, I've reviewed right. the Black Canary series that he did in the '90s, which looked awful. And right. I've read, I've reviewed some of his earlier work in the Secret Origin stories, and it was always awful. Mm-hmm. So I approached the story thinking, oh gosh, this is going to be painful, just because for whatever this this era, I just I haven't enjoyed his work. But I thought it was really solid. I, I liked mm-hmm. his, and actually, and maybe kind of gets away with it because I I noticed that once we get to the shootout in the the end, like the last couple pages, we get almost no background details. It's oh, yeah. just the figures, it's just the action, it's just the character shooting. And I was like, okay, seems like he's kind of getting easy to rush or he's getting kind of lazy. But at the same time, because of what is going on, you don't need background details. I yeah, don't, I, didn't I, don't, miss the, I didn't miss that. Yeah, uh, I, didn't, and I, I didn't need uh, a landscape or mountains or anything in the background because I, I don't care about that. All I care about is the guy with the gun in his hand. Exactly. And I think that what he did really well in this in this story was tell the story with the artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, it really did move the action along. And um, even in the, you know, the boring setup, and I think the setup was really boring and yeah. the artwork was a little boring, but it, it didn't detract from it. Um, and he didn't, you know, exaggerate the characters. I mean, it wasn't like, uh, okay, there are, there's, I think two females shown in here and they are appropriately drawn for the, the time. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it wasn't, I don't think he went out of his way to do anything wrong in this. It told the story. And again, some of the scenes, particularly from the confrontation on, were really good. I enjoyed the, um, you know, way the story flowed right through his artwork. And I was looking at it again as you were doing your synopsis of it and was uh, looking at it and thought, oh, that's a really good scene. And just little things. So, but I agree with you. I didn't miss the 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 plain backgrounds or non-existent backgrounds. And I think it's because the action one was fast. They were telling you, and you knew that there were like one guy going up against seven or eight guys, mm-hmm. and he's wiping them all out. So it's almost like a panel of get ready to shoot, and then a panel of blowing guys away, then a panel of pulling out a different gun, and panel of blowing guys away. But it was bang, bang, bang. Oh, so to speak. That was no <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> but it was really quick. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I think the art, while not, I, it, it's not like, wow, that was great art. But it was, it was competent and it didn't take me out of the story and you didn't go, oh, God, that sucks. Yeah. And, and yeah, again, just because I have a generally very critical opinion of Trevor Von Eden, I was impressed, and I probably I probably like this art more than I should. Um, right. Well, I, I think just, we both kind of like the story and the art probably better than we should. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the one thing about the art, and this has nothing to do with the pencils or the inks. It's actually a coloring issue. Which side of the army did the Trigger Twins serve with? Union. I'm assuming they had to because they attack a rebel patrol. Yes. Uh, Walt actually says Reb Patrol. Reb Patrol, right. But the color of Wayne's uniform throughout this looks really gray. Looks really gray to me, too. Uh, and exactly. I guess, I mean, there's one very close up shot of Wayne, like with a bottle and a woman, and when he's dressed, decked out in his lieutenant's officer gear. And that's clearly a blue officer's jacket. But. The shots of Wayne and the shots of the other soldiers, they're all colored gray. And that, so I was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Okay, they would have joined the Confederacy. And then it's like, wait, they're shooting a, at a rebel patrol? I'm like, whose side are they? Okay, that's – so maybe that's just the coloring wasn't effectively communicated. But Yeah, but uh, I had to go with you on the fact that that first panel, particularly the like the panel that's got a whole bunch of soldiers yeah. in it just marching, mm-hmm. that's kind of a grayish blue, gray. But, but then it's very bright blue in the panel where he's – saying goodbye to his sweetie or hello from the sweetie. So, and they actually say Reb. They attack right, a Reb. Right. So. And I think it was probably not politically correct at the time to focus on Rebel soldiers as heroes. Right. Well, I, in fact, there, there was only two that I know of that I can remember in the whole genre of Western TV shows, and several of them were based upon guys who uh, were now out West after fighting in the war. But they were almost all union, former Union soldiers mm-hmm. who now became sheriffs or whatever. Uh, there were two that I know of, Wanted Dead or Alive and Johnny Yuma, yeah. the Reb, that were both based on uh, characters who fought for the South. Yeah. And, well, Jonah Hex famously uh, – but, he, again, he was, right. he was created right. in the 70s as sort yeah. of – he notoriously uh, <laughs> walked around dressed in a, his Confederate uniform. And, and right. there's a lot of commentary that he just – he did that deliberately to tick people off and to make people hate him. Yeah, Jonah's an interesting character. Yeah. You know, he and Batlash both mm-hmm. <laughs> for total different reasons. I could see a funny – and I think DC's Legends has a – Golden opportunity. 
So be, I'm just saying, once you've opened the door to time travel and multiple Earths, it's all possible. Yeah. Speaking of that, and I mentioned that I'd never read a whole lot of Western comics. I, I still haven't compared other than, mm. other than Jonah Hex stuff, but right. this is the third Western story that I've reviewed for Secret Origins. We got one more coming up in the last issue, but of the three so far, uh, I've reviewed The Whip, which was a very mm-hmm. fun story. I enjoyed that. Yes. Uh, the Origin of Jonah Hex, which was also really, really good. Uh, and now the Trigger Twin story, which I, I think we both agree, as a concept, the twins aren't that interesting. But right. as one story, I liked this. I thought this. Yeah, was I'll agree with you yeah, there. Was, I'll agree with you there. As a concept, not particularly great. Again, I made a fun, you know, a little joke. It's Hawk and Dove mm-hmm. of the 1880s. But I don't know. I don't know. They pulled this particular story off okay. But like you, I don't think it would – even based on the story, I finished and go, well, it wasn't great, but it didn't – it wasn't terrible. It was okay. Right. But it didn't make me say, gee, I can't wait to see more Trigger Twins. Right. You know? Whereas uh, the two you mentioned, Whip and Jonah Hex, both, when I first read those originally, uh, I couldn't wait for my next Jonah Hex fix. Mm-hmm. You know? I really liked him. So, but I like Vigilante. I like a lot. I think DC has a lot of quote unquote Western type characters that they could exploit if they really wanted to. They do. And I was actually thinking like when I was reading this, I was kind of thinking, I really wish we could have gotten something like Scalp Hunter or you know, mm, mm-hmm. Matt Lash, you know, one of those guys that, that would have been good too. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, really quick sidebar for Jonah Hex fans. If you want to hear more about that. Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, the hosts of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast, have an occasional sort of side project that's part of that feed called Hex and Violence. It's dedicated to Jonah Hex. They've put out a zero episode and a first episode. It's going to be a sort of irregular coming out every couple months as they get around to it. Uh, but those first two episodes, I highly recommend checking those out. They're a lot of fun. Cool. Uh, getting back to this, um, yeah, I didn't really have any other notes on the story, the art, I think better than I expected the story better than it had a right to be. Um, (laughs) There are certainly flaws to the story, but I think it, at at least the last part, the last half of the story really kind of made it worthwhile when you've got this good character beat, a confrontation between two brothers with this history. And it culminates in a pretty epic gunfight over two pages and and two pages out of eight. That's not bad. That's a good, (laughs) right. Uh, Even the bad guy, the very last bad guy to bite the dust, uh, figured it out at the end. Wait a minute. The other one didn't have a badge. You do. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, figured it out a little too late there, buddy. And then even then when he realized, oh, there's two of you, mm-hmm. he thought he had uh, the weaker shot when he actually had Wayne the better shot. Because he so. believed in the legend. He, he assumed exactly. that the sheriff was he, – he got it right. The sheriff was Walt and he's the one that everybody had been talking about. He just didn't realize that the legend was based on a lie. And Exactly, and, which many of those legends were back then. Well, the the man who shot Liberty Valance. Isn't that where didn't the quote comes from? Didn't shoot? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. when, the, when the legend – or how does the quote go? When the truth becomes legend, print the legend? Oh, God, God, I'm getting the line wrong. Uh, but that's close. Yeah. Um, this is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact – Print the legend. What it did do, though, Ryan, was kind of make me think, you know, I haven't actually read any cowboy comics in a long time. So uh, 
I'm actually thinking of going back into the long boxes here, digging up and seeing what I can find, seeing if I can. Because a few years ago, I don't know, it's been seven or eight years ago now, I did what I call the great comics purge. <laughs> and I got rid of a couple thousand of my comics and a bunch of the Westerns went with them. Oh, yeah. I pretty much tried to pare it down to just the cream of my DC uh, superhero stuff. Superman, Batman, Justice League, Green Lantern, Fly, you know, mm. those guys. I bet I've got less than a dozen Marvel comics left. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it got weird. But anyway. Yeah, based on, I mean, based on what you feel like going back to read or what you had read in the past, like what, I mean, for if anybody wants to read Trigger Twin stories, you're going to have to go back and find some old stories from All-Star Western. Or, like I said, four of their stories were reprinted either in the Trigger Twins one-shot or the Showcase Presents Top Gun. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can find those, you can get a, a sampling of Trigger Twins. Otherwise, what other good Western stories would you recommend, Bob? Like I mentioned earlier, almost all, if you can find them, and most of the time I see them on eBay fairly uh, inexpensively, actually, are some of the old TV, the comic books based on the TV westerns of the time. And just like my favorite is Have Gun Will Travel with Richard Boone, there was a corresponding comic uh, from Gold Key, I think, put out uh, a Have Gun Will Travel series. But I would recommend almost any of those. But I did like In Stock Trades does have a couple of Western collections, trades, but they are more modern, um, more modern stuff. So uh, if you can find them, though, try to find some of those. Have Gun Will Travel. There was one called Lawman. There was one called Wyatt Earp. And any, any of the Hopalong Cassidy and Gene Autry comics of the 50s and 60s. If you find those, you'll find some really fun, almost Saturday morning cartoon of a Western genre type, if that's what you're thinking. If you want hardcore Western comics that are more true to life, more unforgiven Clint Eastwood, I don't know of any except a few that were tried um, from Marvel Comics in the Bronze Age, Kid Colt Outlaw, Two Gun Kid, uh, some of those kinds of things. But uh, you're going to have to go eBay. Unfortunately, I just don't find them being reprinted much. And I looked on Comixology and couldn't find any of them. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's not big enough right now. There's not a big enough market. So there really isn't. And since my generation isn't getting any younger, uh, I, I'm not sure that the, the Western genre as a whole is going to make a comeback, even though if you go to the, many of the geek sites that you and I both frequent, on Facebook and other places, we know those guys are into Clint Eastwood and they're into John Wayne and they're into, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you and I had a, a little conversation earlier about Rio Bravo. There are comics from that time period, but you do have to take a little, it takes a little work to find them. Yeah. yeah. So, so good luck. <laughs> Well, Bob, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from – sorry. <clears throat> Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more about you or more from you in the, in the blogging or podcasting realm? Well, my uh, uh, two main podcasts right now are the Superman Forever Radio Podcast, which is a solo podcast. It's one I do. Uh, I just talk about Superman. Uh, it's not an index show. It's just whatever my little brain can come up with uh, a couple times a month. 
I spit out a whole bunch of stuff about Superman and his cast of characters. So it can be anything. And if, uh, my latest episode was a little tribute to Noel Neal, who passed away not too long ago. Uh, and I also, with John M. Wilson, do the Giant Superman podcast, where we look at the Silver Age through those great 80-page giants. Uh, and we're starting with the Superman from beginning to end. Uh, and I'm also on Facebook, if you can find me, Bob Fisher. So, uh, But anyway, thank you, Ryan, for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. This was. Thank you very, very much. I was glad to talk to you about this. Secret Origins Episode 47 covered three fallen members of the Legion of Superheroes, Pharaoh Boy, Karate Kid, and the Chemical King, which I discussed with Tim Wallace, Dr. Ange, and Russell Burbage, respectively. At the end of that episode, I asked listeners to share their list of favorite Legionnaires. I will address those lists after I cover social media and website comments. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Bat at Shapirak, Between the Pages, Callum Nar, Chris Miranda, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, David Gallagher, David Fister, at Dexter underscore KTM, Eli Loomis, Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Jacob Alberic, Jacob Edwards, at Man Punch It, John Stinson Fernand, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, KSC GSF Podcast, Legion of Superheroes, Longbox Crusade, Lost My Place, Luther at Luther Lang, Mark Sweeney, McDaniel Abigail, Michael Dabb, Mike McLarty, Mo Walker, Nerd Most, Phil at Isolated Tops, Ravens Lang, Richard Field, Russell Burbage, Scott Rowland, Sean at Sergey Bamba, Silver and Gold, Siskoid, Sunbok Lu, Son of Cthulhu, Stephen Shen, Superman, Cap Marvel, Sin, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Unearthly Visions, Waiting for Doom, and Warlord Worlds. Rob at Treasury Comics tweeted, My favorite kind of Legionnaires, dead ones. <sighs> Cold-blooded. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Abadaba, Abel Padilla, Aaron Head Moss, Al Sedano, Anastasia Gloom, Beware of Monsters Podcast, Billy Lacasse, Chris Franklin, Chris Phelps, Christopher Willette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, DC Comics Fans, Debeche, The Fire and Water Podcast Network, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Greg Arujo, Head Speaks, The Headcast Network, Igor Glushkin, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Cord Industries, Kyle Benning, Leon Bain, Legion of Superbloggers, Leslie Trigg III, The Longbox Crusade, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Michael Wagner, Neil Whitney, Partha Pradham Chakravarti, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, Rob Williams, Russell Burbage, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Siskoid, Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, Task Force X, Thomas Falvey, Tim Wallace, Valdus A. Kunzens, Van Z, Vinny G. and Freddy III, and Zeb Oswald. If anyone promoted the show on social media and I forgot to mention your name, first, I apologize, and second, let me know and I'll correct that mistake in the future. 
All right, let's head on over to the comments left on the Fire and Water website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Again, I'm going to read the comments and general responses before getting into everyone's favorite Legionnaire lists. Also, as per usual, I'm going to cherry-pick from the comments for the sake of expediency. The first comment came from a guest on last episode, Dr. Ange, who said, Glad Russell was able to talk about Legion of Superheroes issue 300 and the story where Douglas Nolan does head to the dream world. You know, I just read that issue two days ago. If I had literally been one issue further along in the Curse Collection, I would have known some of the answers to the questions Tim and I couldn't answer on that segment. Ange doesn't love Chemical King as much as Russell does, but he does say, In a weird bit of cosmic synchronicity, Superboy and the Legion issue 211 is a hugely important comic for me as well, as I consider it my first comic ever. And he provided a link to an article he wrote about it on Diablo Frank's DC Bloodlines blog. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, What a great show, we can never have enough Legion coverage. He also says, It's a shame Paul Levitz never got to write Chemical King regularly. He was great at figuring out power usage plot lines. Still, he did give us a fun chemical kid in the pre-Flashpoint Adventure Comics Legion Academy. And Martin adds, Cute as they would have been, I can't see how an invisible kid Chemical King romance can be extrapolated out of this origin story, given it starts from Lyle's death. Lyle died because he was seduced by a ghost woman, so even if he was bi, he wasn't focusing on Kondo. Oh, Invisible Kid, you tease. Rob Kelly from the Film and Water podcast asked if Legion of Superheroes was a huge seller because of how much representation they got in Secret Origins. Then Diablo Frank posted a bunch of sales figures for various series in the 1980s. Rob also said, I chuckle at the idea that, of all of the Legion members, it was Karate Kid who got a solo series. Amazing what a fad can do if you got the right name at the right time. Jeff R. said, I actually loved that Karate Kid moment with Grimbor's giant chain, in which he was displaying the find-the-weakest-spot-in-anything superpower that he sometimes had in order to qualify for the Legion. But my favorite Karate Kid moment happened in the first rebooted Legion, at the end of the first long-form story in which we saw Val holding his own against Daxamites and facing them down with a broken leg. Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast said, I can't say I care for Badger's inks over Swan. It smacks of DC trying to edgy up an established traditional comic artist with someone with an iconoclastic style, like putting Bill Sienkiewicz over Jim Aparo for rather ugly results. And then Chris admits, I wrongly assumed Karate Kid was far more important to Legion history due to two comics, The Brave and the Bold 198, where he teamed up with Batman and wrapped up plot threads from his solo book, and Legion of Superheroes Annual Number 2, where he and Projector got married. So when I found out he was killed in an unattainable Baxter series, I was very surprised. Well, earlier this episode, you just heard Shag talk about his mistaken belief that Rex the Wonder Dog was a big deal. What's the Ancient One's line in the Doctor Strange trailer about looking at life through a keyhole? When you do that, everything you see seems huge, like it takes up the entire world. And then you open the door and realize, oh no, that's not that big at all. Joe X said, Daddy Nolan's crash is what police write up as a single car accident to cover up a suicide. Although Legion parents aren't the best pilots, the Reigns died in a similar way. He also said Valor, Inferno, and Timberwolf all had solo series, as well as Superboy and Supergirl. And Kyle Benning also reminded me of the Valor solo series. 
Uh, I don't count Superboy and Supergirl because they originated outside of the Legion. Same thing with Monel slash Valor, although his publication life is much more tied to the Legion, so I can kind of see that as a spin-off series. Uh, but then Clinton Robinson said the Valor solo series was only tangentially connected to the Legion because Crisis and Zero Hour were causing muddy waters. As for the other two that Joe X mentioned, I had no idea Timberwolf had a solo book, and I don't know who Inferno is. Diablo Frank of the DC Bloodlines podcast talked about how he likes Pharaoh Lad, but needs him to stay dead. His sacrifice and martyrdom is the most important aspect of his character, especially in a world where Gwen Stacy and Bucky Barnes can't even stay dead forever. Then he talked about how Karate Kid is dumb, and then he got to Chemical King. I don't recall ever having direct contact with Chemical King in a story, and the early Chris Sprouse art on this looks a bit wonky. That said, both Feral Lad and Chemical King laid on the heavily whipped melodramatic lather extra thick. Whatever creative workshop rules that breaks, it's an intrinsic aspect of the appeal of the Legion of Superheroes. So long as I can get out of the way of my smug cynicism, both these stories sound like they'd kick my heart square in the ass. Just the preview pages with whatever Chemical Not Kid King's real name is, melting down over chemical reactions in the face of personal loss chokes me up a little. It sounds like the right kind of manipulative. Obviously, I'm also on board with allowing Chemical King to manifest whatever sexual orientation he's inclined toward. It does get me, though, that Legion has always attracted more women and gays than the average mainstream superhero franchise via female representation and a strong fan community reading and requesting coded homosexuality going back to the Silver Age. It's no new revelation that the X-Men took the exact same formula and expanded upon it fantastically, but part of their improved results was through embracing racial representation and subtext that the Legion outright refused or handled in, you know, the worst ways possible. It reminds me of the bubbling conversations about how minority representation used to be looked at as everybody versus the oppression of straight white men. Now we've got, say, straight white females woman-splaining for all of feminism without consulting the voices of minorities within their own movement. Take your allies where you can get them, but X-Men is still the voice of universal inclusion as written almost exclusively by middle-class cis males, and Legion is the I'm-not-a-feminist-because-I-don't-hate-men of progressive comics. Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom, which now only has to wait a month between issues since the new Doom Patrol series launched, and I recommend checking out both the issue and Paul's podcast. They're both crazy and fun. Paul said, Listening to Secret Origins with Ryan talking about his evolving feelings for the Legion of Superheroes, I'm filled with optimism for the evolution of his feelings for Hawk and Dove. With a bit of persistence, patience, and a lot of love from me, I'm confident that Ryan and I will be announcing a new podcast, Give Me Those Bird-Themed Romantically Linked Agents of Order and Chaos. Look for it in 2017. Keep dreaming, Paul. If you can will Doom Patrol into existence, anything is possible. Jeff Nettleton said, Funny enough, my first Legion comic was Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes issue 228 with the death of Chemical King. He was given a great ending, even if he wasn't used well before, or much, rather. One thing the Legion did well was kill off characters. Most actually stayed dead. Wow, that was Jeff's entire comment. I think that's the shortest comment he's ever left. David Ace Gutierrez said, I cannot convey my confusion as a child when I saw the Karate Kid and wondered, A, how does this tie into the Legion of Superheroes, there was a thank you or something to DC Comics during the closing credits, and B, was Daniel the same Ralph Macchio from Marvel Comics? I was a pretty stupid kid. 
but Karate Kid is probably one of the greatest movies of its era. I would have preferred to hear more about Daniel LaRusso, but that's not your fault. Hey, talk to Rob. That's his department. Clinton Robinson said, Nemesis Kid's favorite musical is Annie Get Your Gun. It absolutely has to be. How do I know this? Because I promise you that during his fight with Karate Kid, in his head he is singing, Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. See, now, if this was one of Professor Allen and Emily Middleton's podcasts, that would have been a Hamilton reference. And Jimmy McGlinchey said, I found it interesting that a lot of guests were recommending the three-boot version of the Legion. I found it okay, but for me, the best jumping-on point was the post-zero-hour version of the Legion, especially as it was setting up the Legion from the start, whereas the Legion three-boot version was fully formed when the Legion began. I just mentioned the post-zero-hour version as it was the one where the revised Pharaoh lad came into the Legion when a number were stranded in the 20th century. I enjoyed his introduction, and he had some good tales during that part of the Legion. There was one story with Triad, the updated name for Triplicate Girl, which was quite poignant. The last bit of feedback I received was a very nice email from James Brucker, who told me he travels a lot and generally listens to the podcast while in various hotels across the land. Thank you for that email, James. Okay, on to everybody's favorite Legionnaires lists. Diablo Frank tweeted a link to an article on Blaster.com, that's Blaster spelled without the E. They ranked 49 Legionnaires from worst to best. You might want to check that out to compare to your list. Then again, I'm not sure how much stock I put in their list. I mean, they ranked 49 members? What, they couldn't puff it up to even 50? Anyway, Van Z, a.k.a. Al Gerding, said his number one favorite was Superboy, number two, Wildfire, number three, Ultra Boy, with Timberwolf a close fourth. And he said his favorite female Legionnaire is Dawnstar. David Gallagher tweeted that his top three Legionnaires were Triplicate Girl, Bouncing Boy, and Brainiac 5. Abadaba listed more than three favorites. He said Wildfire, Timberwolf, Sunboy, Phantom Girl, and Dream Girl. He said Phantom Girl and Dream Girl are the Marianne and Ginger of the comics. Jared Driscoll said his top three are Arm Fall Off Boy, his right arm, and his left arm. Nice. Dr. Ange's favorites, number one, Wildfire, number two, Lightning Lass, and number three, A, Chameleon Boy, and three, B, Shrinking Violet. And he qualified his list saying, yes, Supergirl should be on the list, but he limited to just Legion characters. Martin Gray said he has many favorites, and three of them are Ultra Boy, Sensor Girl, and Saturn Girl. Jeff R. said number one, Brainiac 5, number two, Polar Boy, and number three, Phantom Girl. Chris Franklin said, excluding Superboy and Supergirl, his favorites are number one, Lightning Lad, number two, Monel, and number three, Wildfire. Joe X said his top three are number three, Matter Eater Lad, number two, Lightning Lad, and number one, Block. Joe also said his favorite non-Legionnaire is Color Kid. Diablo Frank left his three favorite Legionnaires and three Legion Rejects, and he provided a paragraph explaining each choice. I am not going to read all of the explanations. You can go to the Fire and Water website and read Frank's reasoning for yourself. For the Rejects, number six, Shrinking Violet, number five, Cosmic Boy, and number four, Brainiac 5. Then for the actual top three Legionnaires, number three, Chameleon Boy, number two, Invisible Kid, and number one, Saturn Girl. And I do like Frank's reason for Saturn Girl, so I'll read that part. 
Nothing says Legion like a member named after a planet instead of their powers or really anything but randomly associating them with something science-y. She's one of the most powerful exemplars of one of my favorite terrifying superpowers. I like most of her costumes, and she's one of the few Legionnaires I can enjoy seeing drawn by Kurt Swan. She's a strong leader when so inclined, but has the needed personality and flaws Cosmic Boy lacks. She's also everything I liked about Jean Grey, but the hair, with a better color scheme and without the inter stellar radioactive baggage of the Phoenix Force. Paul Hicks's top three, number three, Shrinking Violet, number two, Brainiac 5, and number one, Matter Eater Lad. Bradley Null's top three, Monel, Wildfire, and Brainiac 5. Paul in KC's top three, Brainiac 5, Cosmic Boy, and Matter Eater Lad. Clinton Robinson's top three, excluding Superboy and Supergirl, starts with a three-way tie for the number three spot, Cosmic Boy, Light Lass, and Sensor Girl, number two, Ultra Boy, and number one, Monel. Jimmy McGlinchey's top three from the post-Zero Hour continuity, number one, Kinetics, number two, Excess, and number three, Monstrous. His favorite original Legionnaires, Phantom Girl, Chameleon Boy, and Brainiac 5. Gregor Rougeau's top three, Matter Eater Lad, Wildfire, and Brainiac 5, with three runners-up, Kent Shakespeare, Timberwolf, and Laurel Gand. MTC said, my favorite three Legionnaires are Triplicate Girl. <laughs> nice. Well played, MTC. Well played. And lastly, Nathaniel Wayne said his favorites are Bouncing Boy, Matter Eater Lad, and Monstrous, then clarified that by saying, I should note that I've never read a Legion story in my life, and this list is based solely on the names that made me smile the most. That is a good strategy. So, my favorites list, which I have amended slightly since my talk with Russell Burbage last episode, excluding Superboy and Supergirl, because it's hard for me to separate Superboy and Superman, and I like Superman and Supergirl more than any Legionnaire, so not including them. My top three Legionnaires currently are Bouncing Boy, Chameleon Boy, and Pharaoh Lad. If you count the Legion of Substitute Heroes, then my list is actually Chlorophyll Kid at the number one spot. Yes, based on like three comics that I've read with him, including and especially in Secret Origins, I love Chlorophyll Kid. Then Bouncing Boy at number two and Chameleon Boy at number three. My top three female Legionnaires, because they should have been represented but just missed out, in no particular order, Saturn Girl, Dream Girl, and Triplicate Girl. And my top three Legion names that just sound cool and make me smile, like Nathaniel said, number three, Nemesis Kid, because come on. Number two, Matter Eater Lad, who sadly I don't know that much about, and I'm going to need to correct that. And number one, with a bullet, Arm Fall Off Boy. And that is going to do it for episode 48 of the Secret Origins podcast. Once again, I want to thank my wonderful guests, Bob Fisher from the Superman Forever radio podcast, Doug Zavisha from My Greatest Adventure 80, and the Irredeemable Shag from the Fire and Water podcast network. I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode, and especially those of you who take the time to promote the show by sharing or retweeting or leaving comments on the website or Facebook pages. Next episode will feature the first and likely only appearance of a Secret Origins artist as a guest on the show, as well as the return of Gene Hendricks. Plus, Siskoid and some friends attempt to answer the question, Bouncing Boy, hot or not? Until then... there
Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. My beloved monster, she's tough. But if she wants, she will disrobe you. Uh-huh. But if you lay her down for a kiss, her little heart, her little heart, it might explode. She will always be the only thing. Comes between me and the awful stink. Comes from living in a world that's so damn mean. Come on!